Turing-dominated uh, arena. But, you know, the images you produce are very inspiring uh, to further uh, the discipline of space architecture. And you're right, it is uh, the ultimate uh, interdisciplinary activity that, that, uh, that we all like to, like to think about. Well, there, there are also two things. Yes, of course, it's still uh, very much uh, engineering-oriented uh, uh, field. Uh, I have in the class, it's always a mixture of architects and engineers. And that is very helpful for both. Uh, and again, uh, as I uh, agree with uh, Barbara, so creativity comes. It's not really um, uh, related to the discipline. What they do learn uh, from each other, it's a different point of view. And of course, some skills as well. But this approaching uh, of the problem solving, defining the problem, and that is the major thing, because that is a very uh, important skill. And uh, not everyone can do that. Finding where is the problem lays. Defining the problem, you're already halfway done. But uh, where to start, it's, uh, it's really it's really critical, right? So um, independent thinking and uh, all of all of it, so it helps them to also respect uh, each other. And I think that is again when they start working in the in for the industry, it's changed paradigm, and it is it's been changing already. So as I said, so many students now graduates are working in for the industry, and uh, uh, different companies. And uh, now there are put, the posting and accepting um, degree uh, and understanding space architecture. So at least it's not something like, whoa, what is that? <laughs> thank you, thank you, Olga. Thank you very much, Olga. And I would like to invite Sam Jimenez to turn on the camera. Hello, Sam, hi. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, Sam Jimenez is a space architect with over 30 years experience in the aerospace industry with NASA, DOD, and international space programs. He is currently CEO of Exploration Architecture Corporation, a space architecture consulting firm he founded in 2007. In 2023, he was indu induced into the San Antonio Aviation and Aerospace Hall of Fame. Sam, you may share the screen. Okay, thank you. Um, there was a question uh, earlier in the day about if anybody online knew Buckminster Fully. And um, I didn't know him, but I did have the pleasure of meeting him uh, in, uh, when, when he came to visit our, uh, our university. And uh, he was very mesmerizing, and uh, he did definitely have a language all of his own. Everybody was just uh, hanging on every, his every word. So that was, that was a great highlight of my life. Okay, so let me uh, get the screen up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's see, I have a video, won't let me share the sound. Okay. Is it possible <clears throat> on your side? It's, it's not great out on my side. Uh, it should be possible, yes. Yeah. Salam, are you saying that you met uh, Bucky? Bucky? Uh, I, did, I did meet him. <laughs> this was uh, during uh, Guy Trotty and Bell? Oh, uh, no, this is way before that. This is back in, oh, really? uh, okay. back in my undergraduate days. Oh, oh fantastic. Okay. 
Yeah. Sam graduated from uh, Sixa a long time ago, right, Sam? I was one of the, I was the first class of the graduates out of Sixa. There were three okay. of us. And, uh, you know, there may be newcomers here who don't know that Buckminster Fuller was the one who framed the term uh, spaceship Earth. And, and mm -hmm. really a paradigm shifter in our thinking, I think, at that time. 1968, right? Uh, the operating manual for Spaceship Earth. Yeah. Hey, Allah, um, I'm trying to, uh, yeah. to the, the share sound on the uh, on the on the uh, Zoom, and it's grayed out. It won't let me uh, share the sound. I think uh, when you share the presentation, the sound should go automatically. Okay, we'll try but it. You haven't you haven't shared your presentation yet. All right, now you're sharing screen. Just a second. We don't see nothing yet. It's just a black screen so far. All right, all right, we see it. Yes, we see it. Okay. Okay, all so right. uh, usually when the sound uh, is needed, that you click a button earlier before, but let's see if it works or not. Okay. Let's see if it works. I think it yeah. will work. Okay, let's see. So I'm going to talk about lava tube caves, and my goal here uh, is to get Brant convinced that uh, Brant convinced that it's going to be uh, useful. They're, okay. they're laughing, son. Go for it, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> that's my sole goal here. Yeah. So, all right. So I've um, been looking at lava tubes for some time here. I, I commissioned this this uh, piece of art from uh, the renowned space artist uh, uh, James Bond uh, to do this, and he got a little fanciful uh, in uh, in showing a uh, you know. A, a hollowed out lava tube that's been cleared out and ready for, you know, for construction. And there's the, there's the, the folks there, <laughs> I guess they're in a pressurized environment because they're not in the space, that, <laughs> but uh, we've got a dome on top of it. And anyway, it was just the uh, kind of a uh, 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 thought experiment here to uh, look at the, what's it, what's it going to take to actually look at these lava tubes and how, how do we, how would we actually get there to utilize them? I don't think that's going to happen until, very much later into the into the future, uh, far future, probably by the end of the century, we'll have a place where we have a thriving community. Uh, I'm going to talk about settlement here. We haven't talked a whole lot about uh, uh, settlement in, in uh, uh, sort of the city planning type of aspects. A lot of it's been today on the on the actual modules and you know point smaller smaller habitats. But let's talk about the the, uh, uh, the ability to actually create a thriving community and a settlement. Um, but before that, there's a little bit of a commercial, uh, space architecture that I've been, uh, uh, doing for some 30 years now. Uh, I began my company in 2007 as XARC, Exploration Architecture Corporation. We've done, uh, uh, projects on, for all, all three planets, uh, Mars, uh, habitation, of course, the lunar-based stuff and, and even space stations and asteroid capture. Those are the domains. The, the one domain we've not talked about today is the terrestrial space architecture. How do space architects uh, 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 employ themselves in, uh, here on Earth? And one of the things we uh, really have uh, focused on is the spaceport design. Uh, we've been part of the uh, first commercial spaceports when it all began back in 2000, 
in five or six, I guess it was whenever the uh, X Prize was won in Berkeley 10, won that, that goal. And then uh, Richard Branson decided to make a business out of it for space tourism. He's still trying to get it up, get it to happen. Uh, it's been a while, but we were on the design team that did the, the with the Foster and Partners out of England, uh, that did the commercial spaceport in, in New Mexico. Uh, we were part of the, uh, uh, the the driving force actually for the Houston spaceport with our economic business study and our conceptual designs for what that would look like and, and selling it to the city of, of, uh, of Houston. Uh, to to convince them that that was going to be a viable project and it's become very successful. Everybody from Houston knows and has been there. It's it's for now they've got Axiom and uh, and, and two of the machines and uh, a lot of uh, you know the whole deal about the spaceports is not really about the land the air side for the spacecraft. It's about the land side. It's the real estate development project essentially and the attraction of, of, of jobs and growth and high tech industries uh, to be part of that you know that that driving force. Uh, uh, called the spaceport with the community. Uh, our most recent project is, uh, is with the government, with the U.S. Transportation Command. Uh, these is these are the folks that uh, deliver the cargo and the material and the, and the logistics for the uh, for the military uh, uh, forward deployment bases around the world, and uh, all those logistics and, and humanitarian aid that, that happens whenever there's a, a human uh, disaster. Uh, there's a program now uh, currently called Rocket Cargo. This is the, uh, the Elon Musk's uh, Starship program is is, uh, is, the, is driving this as the benchmark, where they're trying to get a rocket uh, around the globe in, uh, in under under an hour. Uh, but what happens? It's, you know, everybody's focused on the rockets, but nobody's focused on the infrastructure and the logistics to go into that. And what we're studying with the uh, the, uh, the U.S. Transportation Command is the uh, uh, the spaceport infrastructure that's going to be required globally around around the world in the strategic locations that they would uh, have to be at. Uh, as well as uh, when a rocket gets to, uh, has to go to a, a contested area or even an uncontested area or where there's maybe an earthquake that's happened, uh, it's got to land somewhere to deliver its humanitarian cargo. Uh, how does it land in, in an unimproved surface? Uh, so we're looking at, uh, we have some, some uh, Air Force money to look at the uh, temporary landing pad and the you know, expeditionary type of a, a deployment of, uh, of landing fields for these rockets as well. So that's kind of, that's the that's what's uh, the the area of terrestrial space architecture. It's it's, it's still a very very valid domain of a, of the uh, of, of the of the discipline. All right, let's talk about the uh, lava tubes. So uh, we know there 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 are pits and caves and, and skylights skylights uh, or the collapsed lava tubes uh, in all three planets all 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 the planets essentially. It's a very prevalent geo, you know, geologic feature. Um, the, the largest one here on Earth is the corner down the bottom there on the on the right side. That's the cave in uh, Vietnam, Hong Song Dong Cave, and uh, it's, it's about 48 meters in, in uh, height from the uh, ceiling to the roof. You can see a small little man there at the bottom, in the middle of that of that uh, of that picture. Um, there's the ones on uh, Mars are larger than the ones on the Moon. The Moon are the ones on Moon are larger than the ones on Earth, and that's all because of gravity. Um, we've discovered over 200 caves, or not caves, but the, these these pits, essentially. Um, some of them at the bottom of them are the, uh, again, these skylights, and at the bottom of the, of the lava tubes. Some are just, just basic, uh, just pits. But we decided to look at this in terms of a case study. Uh, we took one one specific site uh, in, in, uh, called the Marius Hills Volcanic Complex, at the, at the Marius Hills Volcanic Complex. 
and there's a there's a skylight there a pit and uh, we wanted to use that as a case study a benchmark so to speak uh, to develop what we call our lunar uh, or leap two program or uh, lunar ecosystem and architectural prototype uh, the the technologies and the, uh, the the applications of how you get to these uh, these locations and how you uh, how you uh, develop them uh, would probably translate to almost most anyone, even from, from the ones on Mars as well. So that's more that's why we call it the prototype, like architectural prototype. Uh, what we found in the in the Marius Hill skylight, uh, it's it's about a, a 60 diameter uh, uh, meter hole, about 140 feet deep. Uh, and what we're look, trying to do here is see what it looks like to develop this particular site for mining, for human settlement. How does human settlement actually begin at this particular site when it's a pristine location that hadn't been touched for billions of years? How, how do you begin that process to, to establish it for uh, whatever goals you have for the, for the settlement, whether it be for tourism or for mining or for uh, archiving of the, of the human uh, civilization's treasures or whatever? Uh, there's all kinds of ways you could uh, utilize these sites. The, the goal would be, the, and this is the, the, the hard part, way down in part of the end of the decade before we can try and cover these holes up, uh, put a dome on top of them, so that uh, you know we can get out of these spacesuits, get out of the out of the uh, cans, and, and start breathing uh, uh, better air. But this, I'll talk more about that and that challenge in itself. Uh, so. You know, when you, when you start looking at the at the site itself, and it's just like any architectural project or an urban urban plan or city project, you got to look at the site overall. How you're going to lay it out, where it goes where. Uh, in terms of, you, you've got to have a spaceport. Uh, it's your first infrastructure that you need to you need to create. You need to have a location for your power system. Your in this case, we'll probably use certainly be using nuclear power, uh, and then with probably and with a combination of solar power. Uh, you're going to have a mining site, your habitation zone. Uh, these are all things that need to be considered when you start. The, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm saying over here in this, uh, I guess you can see this cursor here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, these are storage tanks for uh, for when you, if the business of the uh, of the settlement is to maybe uh, mine the uh, the ore, the, the regolith, extract the oxygen out of it and, um, and produce it for fuels to uh, to to sell to coming and going spacecraft that are going on to Mars or, or just the, just the general cis-lunar economy that's going to be developed by the time you get to this sort of a infrastructure development. Um, and, and most certainly you're going to be mining at these at this on the surface for your oxygen requirements that you're going to need to have to, to, to for, for the gases you need to have to to breathe in the, in your own environment down in the you know press for the pressurized cave and the, and the covered up dome as well. So at the end of it you probably have something like this. So this is kind of another fanciful look at what this could probably look like by I'm going to guess here, end of the century. You have you have as much surface activity as you do on the on the top of the, of the location as you do underground in the, in the lava tube. So, and of course, as you know, the lava tubes are going to be useful for for the radiation protection uh, in the uh, in the micrometeorites and you know just the benign environment. There's a constant temperature there that you don't have to deal with on the surface between the night the diurnal cycles of hot and cold on the surface. So you have different te different uh, technologies that uh, would a little bit easier to design to than you would on the on the surface. But you see here, you know, the, you know, we're talking about a, a, a huge volume. Um, whether you can pressurize these, you know, this or not, you know, that's all uh, not TBD to be determined. But you know, we're talking about you know, technology development. It's, you know, 50 more years of technology development and materials development 
who knows what's going to happen, but you know, between now and then, to allow this start, sort of a, 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 the environment to occur. Uh, you see uh, the landing port back at the back over there. Uh, that's the first infrastructure that has to be required. Before we even get down in the cave, uh, you're going to be doing uh, camp out missions and whatever, but you need to start to be, in terms of a full settlement, you need to get a, a, a landing port built. And, uh, and that's going to you know, allow you to be able to come and go with resupply missions and crew changeouts and all, the, all that goes into it. Over here, we see our, our, our solar panel uh, location. Then at the, on the other side of this terrain here is the, again, the nuclear power system. And, you know, again, there's a lot going on on the top as much as there is on the, on the bottom. Uh, on one side, you have of the cave. Since it's a lava tube, you have two entrances of the, of the hole. On one side, you have the, the industrial area, the, you know, the production of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the fuels or the air or whatever, or the, whatever the, the business of the, of the community is, whatever, what's the export business of it? What's that, that economy that's, that's being developed for, for it? You know, the hydroponics and the growth of the farming. On the other side, you have the, the habitation area. And I, I purposely designed this to, so that, uh, you know, not to put modules and not, how do you, you know, in, uh, um, give the imagination to, 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 to the general populace uh, that you know we can live the same way on on the moon as you can on on Earth, and these are you know these are these are again very fanciful in terms of what the, what this could look like. Uh, you, know, you have your industrial area going on over here. This is again your your storage and all the uh, industrial zone essentially. So, how do we begin this thing? How does that happen? You know, how does that that pristine site occur when there's nothing there? It's, it's a phased approach. We know that now, between now and uh, in, in this decade, uh, we're going to have we have the uh, orbiting satellites that are doing the sensing. Uh, they're they're locating the uh, the topology, the minerals for the mineral. Maybe there's an ore field there that where all the best regolith is for that has the best uh, source of oxygen. We know that oxygen is in is in the grains of the uh, of the regolith. And as, as and I just want just an aside here. Um, Space architects, if they're going to go back to the moon, you need to know about dust. You need to know about lunar dust. You need to know about the grain sizes. You need to know about that if you're going to use regolith as a building material. It's very, it's, it's, it's very critical. So understanding that for remote sensing is going to be the first st stage of the head. You know, these are a data sets that we, that we acquire uh, to, in order to, to convince ourselves this is a good site to go to. And then the, to go to it is going to be the remote, uh, the, the robotics uh, reconnaissance missions. This is these are for the scientists. The scientists are going to be are going to go there first. They're going to they, these have going to be pristine sites. Their 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 measurements have to be uncontaminated by by landing spacecraft uh, that that brought it there. So there's some issues there in terms of the traverses and how far away you need to land before you get to the to the pit itself. Then you have a way. Need a way to get down into the pit. You need access. You need a, uh, And there's all kinds of concepts out there, from zip lines to uh, to other type of robots to uh, to falling falling uh, and propelled uh, uh, vehicles of some sort. Uh, but uh, what, no matter how it is, you, you need to have a way to get down into it. And it's dangerous it's because there's a lot of collapse, a lot of rubble, a lot of debris. The next phase is going to be um, uh, the human robotic reconnaissance, humans and robots. So, I think within but by the end of this day, we may be able to see a, a mission to the to the uh, to the uh, one of these to this lunar cave. Our Lido mission is is what we're proposing. 
Uh, but after that, then would be the you know getting the ground truth uh, for the from the um, of the robots that that uh, with the astronauts. The astronauts come and they they'll do a camp out. It's going to be a small you know short duration mission of uh, three days or what, just to bring in your provisions. You haul it in with your with your uh, mule robots and uh, and you 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 know you again ground truth what the robots uh, found that that uh, came before you found out and see if this has really got their structural integrity. It's, it's got it's got the ability to to put in the investment for for the infrastructure that's going to be required for the long-term settlement of this of this particular location then by the mid mid decade i think we'll probably find, find a little bit longer stays we can bring in the, some modules to stay there uh months at a time you, you can have you still got to deal with bringing your bringing your uh, your resources with you your food supplies and your air and all this uh, there may be a, a initial mining happening at the top of the, on the surface. Again, on the surface, you probably already started your spaceport, your landing pads that you need to have. Um, so after that, but this is I think 2040, 2050 time frame. Then after 2050 uh, plus, then you start doing the, the full blown infrastructure where you you start clearing out the, uh, the 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 site, the debris, and the, putting in the long term you know big heavy duty power systems. Communication systems. You got more uh, ability to, you know, uh, to come and go with the uh, with the spacecraft. By the end of the decade, maybe you do have this uh, this covered up dome at this point. That's kind of the goal there, and, and we're thinking we can get a, maybe a, a, you know we designed this right now for a community of a hundred hundred settlers. Uh, it's probably uh, at the most the most I think might be a point that we could be able to deal with the you know the the ECLIS requirements. They're going to be horrendous. All the all the resupply, the uh, the the again the gases, the uh, the you know the, uh, the the breathing air. Where does it come from? This this pit, this particular pit, probably requires almost eighty three thousand cubic meters of gas to to breathe. And that doesn't even count. Does not include the uh, the the tubes themselves. So that's the end of the century. So that's that's what we call our lunar ecosystem architectural prototype, the Leap Two program. All right, so the Lido mission. So how do we begin? So so we're we're actually looking at how do how do you actually do this? We're actually designing our mission concept for for that first reconnaissance mission, and the and the way to get there uh, and start exploring the cave. So we've we've come up with this mission called Lido. Um, it's Lido, as you know, is the the mother of Apollo and, and Artemis, and um, uh, she she when she was pregnant, she was looking for a place to a refuge to you know to to have her her, her twins. And this is kind of named in terms of in, uh, after her for that regard. In terms of maybe the settlement site is the birthplace of a human settlement. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play a video here. I hope this video this sound comes on because it's really important to have the sound. Let's see if this works. Are you hearing the sound? No. Yeah, no. It go to more in on your Zoom menu. Go to more. There should be a uh, share computer sound. Uh, record captions. Raise hand. Video. Uh, the more. There should be a more. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I did more. In the, the pull down menu says record captions. Raise hand. Hide video panel. Hide floating controls. There's nothing else about that. You should, I also should cannot find it. 
Let's see. Uh, let me uh, let me pause the share here. Mm-hmm. Chart again. <clears throat> So I'm going to try to share because usually when you do the share, there's a little little button at the bottom that says share sound. It's there, but it won't it won't click. It's grayed out. I don't know why this is doing that. Yeah. Is there a separate permission for sound sharing? Ah, Well, um, I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna play it. Maybe I'll narrate it. As we go maybe, maybe if you go uh, when you share the screen, do you go to basic or advanced? Oh, good question. Let's see what I did. Um, click the share screen again. Yeah. And then at the top, you can see basic, and then you just click on there. advanced right okay. next to it, and then try to uh, click on video as to video. share the video. Video. Okay. And maybe now should be better. Yeah, still won't let me share the sound though. All right, let's, let's see what it says, what it does. Mm-hmm. And now it wants to, wants to, wants to locate a video. Bobby, you send a link in the chat to uh, Alma and she can play this. This looks like a YouTube video. Okay, I'll send, I'll send you the, uh, uh, I link. can try, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Let me get the link then. Um, let's see. I'm still sharing or not? Yeah, let's see. Let's go here. It's a It looks like it's an online YouTube video. Um, Do you have it? Um, No. I mean, we can uh, we can see the the screen that you're sharing. Yeah. Uh, It's loading. Loading up. I think it's better Alma uh, share it. Alma, Um, you can do the search on YouTube. Or uh, Sam, if you click that uh, upper left name, you'll go to YouTube directly. Then you will have a link and copy that link in the chat uh, for Alma to copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me uh, get that. Get to the uh, to the link. I'm sorry, I apologize, guys. This is a big snafu here. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the title of the video? So if you cannot uh, share the the link. All right, I see. I see a link here. Yeah, Frodo seemed to found it. Oh, okay. So almost right. I will I will try to find it now. To my 
Okay, just a second. If you uh, Google. Forward or copy and paste the link in the chat. Mm -hmm. can, you see my, can you see the screen? Yes. All right, just a second. Is the same one? It looks like it is. Oh, no sound. Is there a sound? Yeah, there no. should be sound. We didn't hear any sound here. You didn't hear any sound? No. I do have my own sound issues. This is why I'm on two, um, okay, two accounts. But I don't know if it has anything to do with it. Sorry. Let me try it from my end. Okay, you gotta pay five. Five dollars is a sum. Five dollars? It's Google. So I put in the chat the link there. Well, okay. I don't know what's wrong with the sound. Who's playing the videos from from you, from your side? Okay, uh, that's the best resort. Let's do it here. No. Chat. Okay. Can you hear? I don't hear anything. Okay, one second. How about now? No, not really. No. No. You might have to give up at some point, Kim. I know, yeah. I know, I agree. You might have to concede defeat. I know it's terrible, but... Are you all right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, right. technology. You're right. You can turn captions on a YouTube video. Caption. If we just call. 
All right. So I, I think we do our best. Uh, so I think we'll just proceed to play the video. That's probably all we can do. Yeah, I'll put I'll put the link in the chat. Uh, okay. We'll just yeah. Or maybe maybe if you put the microphone next to the speaker. Okay. Mm, no, no sound. All right. Well, we, are we going to give up? <laughs> so. All right, so let me just, let me try and narrate it. I guess uh, the idea is that uh, you know, this uh, this lander lands uh, at some distance away from the from the uh, pit because we want to uh, not contaminate it, and uh, uh, it, so that it has an impact on your design of your rover. It's at least a kilometer of traverse, and we don't have any rovers that have traveled that far uh, on the moon, of course, in in a short period of time. And then the idea is that uh, we use the zipline concept to to uh, to lower a, uh, a payload down into the cave, and this taken uh, you know lidar measurements of, of the cave pit itself. It then deploys a a, a robot, a, a, a mule robot to uh, to go into the cave. There's actually two of them. One is a uh, one is the, the the lead robot that does the uh, it's got the instrument payload on it, and uh, is using it to uh, to map the cave out. And, and you know, take a 3D point cloud so we can understand the you know the, the interior shape and geometry of it, plus also other measurements, mass spectrometry and other kind of uh, scientific measurements that we want to take. And then it runs out. Of, it runs out of uh, juice. Uh, one of the, so then the now it's, this other robot is tethered to the uh, to the zip line. That's a smart zip line. that is receiving power and communications and data back up uh, back to the uh, to the uh, to the lander. And uh, it also has an arm on it that can uh, allow itself to unsnag itself in case it gets snagged in rocks and whatnot uh, with that cable. The reason we need to do this is because once you're in the cave, there's no communication. You don't have any relay to get a comm out, of, out uh, back to you know, your line of sight to the earth or whatever, or even to your spacecraft. That's why we're using this cable concept. And then that, uh, so they do a tandem uh, 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 trade-off here in terms of uh, uh, this, this kind of a battery bot, we call it the second rover, that it repowers that first rover, so we can go on to another distance, another length of distance. And then it comes the, the the it goes as far as the uh, the second rover's cable will allow it, and then it, it can go as then the first one can go even even further more down the road. Um, eventually, uh, it's you know it transfers its its data to uh, to the other robot going through the cable. And then it be able to transmit your your data back to Earth just with your line of sight. And then by the time they uh, they they through, finish their mission, they they power down, and they stay there. They're not they're not expended. They just stay there until the next mission comes. Uh, the human rec reconnaissance mission happens, and and to continue with the, with you know their usefulness as a as a as a essentially mule mule and robots carrying things. Uh, then we're we're setting up. Uh, you saw in the other still images. 
setting up the inflatable, you know, the module that's inflatable. Then we began building the, uh, you know, the, the surface system. Um, then the, uh, for the, uh, you know, building of the, uh, of the base on top, the linear part on top. Here again, we're at the end of this, end of this, you know, starting to get to the point where we're now we can start cre uh, creating the, uh, the dome and building it out. And then we're now long ways into the, into the century here by the time we get here. And now we have, you know, an, an environment that's, you know, that's breathable. And then that's it, essentially that. So, sorry, sorry about that. Snafus <laughs> with technology. I'm going to take the screen again and finish up real quick here. Now you can see this, see the screen, my side again? Yes, we can. Okay. So, so the next step here is to actually, uh, uh, we're going to have a, a mission this summer into a local cave here in San Antonio called Kickapoo Cave. And we're going to uh, run a uh, Boston Dynamic uh, robot and put our instrument payloads on there and mount them on there and do some LIDAR measurements of this cave just to do a con ops of, the, of a mission scenario, how this could work out. So that's kind of an ongoing project we have. This is done more with uh, our, our STEM education program that we have in San Antonio, where we have students that go through our program called Lunar Caves Analog Test Sites. It's uh, teaching uh, middle school through high school students about space exploration and advancing them into a career in space and aerospace. And this is one of the programs that we, we provide them with as well. So I want to talk a little bit about the the construction aspect of this. You know, when we talk about the, this, the, and this will be real quick, we talk about the you know the building up there. We need to think about how do we build. My the subsidiary of, of Exarch is Astroport. Uh, they're they're doing the space construction material manufacturing. Think of Exarch as a, as the architects and uh, Astroport as the civil engineers. And we're doing all the geotechnical engineering that's required for understanding how to do the site preparation in the in the bulk regolith movement. We're talking about moving massive amounts of, of regolith to build these bases and build these landing ports somewhere in the order of 50,000 cubic meters of regolith. That's a huge job, a big, big for any any huge, any uh, earth uh, project. And we only have these little small tractors right now in terms of these bucket drums that are being being used and developed by NASA. So we're gonna need a fleet of these things to start moving this work, this regolith. That's part of what we're looking at as well. We're doing a study for NASA on the uh, on the site preparation for landing pads. How do you build a landing pad? How do you, how do you uh, bring all that regolith together and, and and use it as feedstock for our, our, our molten process that we use for making bricks. We have a process here where we're making the, and this is shown by the way, uh, uh, the, the blast zone, the blast burns for out of the out of, out of bags that are, that are contained with the regular. But we're, you know, at some point we end up, end up with, the, with the, the port. So, you know, we're using regolith as our base material. That's what we need to understand is how to use that and, and use it for uh, for for the construction aspects, you also can take the regolith and, and, and extract minerals out of it, metals and, and trap gases, like I mentioned earlier. We want to get to a point where we're building these bricks, these rebars, uh, and building materials out that whatever we can find and the, the usefulness out of the out of the regolith simulant. This is a simulant you see in here in this picture. We're we're taking the uh, um, an, an induction furnace and melting it, and turning it into bricks. These are our test bricks we've been working with. And uh, you see there in, in the middle of the screen, there, the vacuum that we, we're starting to learn how to make the brick in vacuum because we can do it pretty well in, 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 in ambient, but uh, doing it and melting it in vacuum is a real challenge. So we were only able to do that. It took us almost a year to get it figured out. Uh, we just got our first vacuum brick in December. Now we're moving forward with that to get to the shapes we want to get. 
we were trying to develop our what we call our Lunatron uh, printing system, where it's a 3D type of uh, print where we actually we feed this the robot with the regolith, uh, we melt it, it forms it, and it places it all at the same time. And that's, that's that's the technology we're developing. You can see here the, our first prototype nozzle we, that we developed to do that. Um, we we just uh, get into the the shape we need to have uh, uh, in terms of these interlocking bricks. We haven't got to the size we want to get because we it, it's a matter of a volume of a melt and the way and the ability to cool the melt and cool the brick so it doesn't crack and you have a good sturdy brick. We've been able to get these bricks stronger than concrete. They're 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 they're, they're sturdy and durable. Uh, you can see our this is our lab here with our vacuum set up. You can see in here we started putting the dirt in our we call it dirty vacuum now. Um, Almost done. So this is the zipline stuff we're working on. This is uh, the, the the inflatable floor system idea. Here's the regular pressurization stuff. We've been looking at how do you act, what's the porosity of the uh, of the of the uh, of the uh, of the regolith so that if you do get to the point where we can uh, cover that dome, is it going to leak out at some point? And we're studying those kind of things. So these are all very nascent technologies, very nascent investigations. And we got a whole century to figure it out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sam. Um, there is a question. Um, I'm going to read it to you now. And I would like to keep short with the questions and answers, please, because um, we still have more presenters to um, to present sure, their uh, presentations. All right. And it's quite late in Europe. So um, a question from Esther. Sam, is there a structural support plan for the lava tubes to ensure the walls slash ceilings will not fall? Lava tubes are not necessarily safe on Earth. At this site, there would be landing and launching that generates shakes and additional forces on the tubes. Yes, exactly. That's that's the reason for the reconnaissance missions is to see if the, what's the structural stability of that of that tube. And that, you know, uh, uh, first of all, you know, the openings was a collapsed skylight, so it, it collapsed at that point, right? So it was not not very sound there, and it's it, it got a big rubber pile going into it. So how much structure? Is going to be required to understand, you know, the, the ability of this to make that investment uh, in that infrastructure. So the, we don't know that right now. But that's the reason for the reconnaissance mission is to do those those characterizations. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, can we move on with the presentations? We have a question. One question. All right. From, okay. Uh, yeah, Sam, very uh, impressive uh, uh, presentation. Uh, I had one quick question yeah. on uh, the uh, paving uh, bricks units that you're using. Uh, we know that uh, on uh, regular uh, terrestrial rocket launches that uh, the, the flume can uh, actually knock bricks and things like that loose. Is there, uh, do you have some kind of uh, way to mitigate that or what's your yes. Yeah, yeah, that's actually our proprietary technology that that, that nozzle I showed you does. Uh, the reason, the way it works is that uh, it's a it's an actuated no, uh, wall nozzle. So the the nozzle is the sh in the shape of the brick, that hexagonal shape I showed you, a trilobe. And as the first brick is placed, uh, it moves to the then to the next spot for the second brick, and the wall of the nozzle that's that's adjacent to the first brick raises up, and then that first brick becomes the formwork for the second brick and so on for the third and fourth brick. 
So that so now now those bricks because they're hot and and, and essentially molten lava, they they've melted together and they've heated they've they've, they've you know uh, centered together themselves. So they form a cohesive pavement, over you know over time. And then we come back around, put a laser on top of the surface. Uh, we we laser seam the, uh, the the edges as well. So that 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 makes the pavement that we want to have a cohesive pavement. But there's a lot that goes into it. We need to figure out the, the underlayment, the foundation. We can't just put the brick right onto the regolith. Uh, there's a thermal shock issue that, that's in, involved. We have to figure out the you know, the underlayment of how that brick gets put on top of it that's after it's been leveled out as well. Thank you. Uh, you know, Sam, uh, yeah. I, I like lava tubes. You know that, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I would only suggest that you you consider a Mare Tranquil Patti's pit as opposed to uh, the one you showed. Yeah, we looked at that one, and, and the advantage of that one is it's got a line of sight to earth, and it, but the problem with it is even deeper, and almost twice as deep as the, uh, as the Marius Hills pit. And, uh, and that's that's one of the you know we want to minimize our you know the, the you know the, the difficulty in getting down yeah, get to the pit. Yeah, but as you know, it's close to Apollo. Not it's about it's about 320 <coughs> kilometers from the Apollo shot. Anyhow, good. Thank you so much, Sam. Very yeah. nice, very nice presentation. Thank you. Sorry about the technology glitch. But <laughs> thank you very much, Sam. Okay. Um, I would like to call Vittorio Netti to turn on the camera. Hi, hello. Uh, Vittorio Netti, born in Bari, Italy, has a bachelor's and master's of architecture at Università Juve di Venezia, master in space architecture at University of Houston, and is currently pursuing a PhD in aerospace engineering at Politecnico di Bari in Italy. He is a co-founder of two aerospace startups, and he is currently living in Houston and employed as a researcher at University of Houston. Yes, you may share your screen. Okay, uh, can you hear me, right? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you, Alma, for the introduction. And uh, can you yes, see the screen I, I made you, right? Yes, we see it, we see it, yes. Okay, so my my presentation uh, seems less related to space architecture, but it actually is, and not only. It's more like uh, we're going to talk about uh, human in the loop testing uh, and um, human system interaction, VR, XR. Um, I work as uh, like Alma partly said uh, at Sixa as a researcher. Sixa is uh, as many know as the Sasakawa International Center of Space Architecture, and um, Olga uh, like spoke before about it, um, but basically, uh, in the last two years at Six, uh, in my work as a researcher, uh, it's a work that I started already when I I was a teaching assistant here. Um, we worked to to design and implement what we call the XR testing framework. Um, let's see, let's go ahead and let's see what it is. This work. Okay. So uh, extended reality. Extended. We we call XR uh, like XR stand for extended reality, and it's like a more um, it's a more general term that includes both uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. It's basically um, 
uh, it's a, like a, a term that includes the description of every technology that it's uh, able to um, basically create the uh, an, 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 like a digital layer on top of the of uh, our vision. So like uh, that's as I say, they include both the augmented reality uh, and the virtual reality, and also what is called the mixed reality, that it's another uh, different concept, but that's not the focus. Uh, extended reality, but XR, extended reality, it's basically what is the term that describes all these technologies together. Um, XR has, has a long history with the, the space sector. Um, <clears throat> here we see some like uh, uh, training uh, uh, like an uh, experimental headset that uh, I think we are <coughs> we are here like uh, in the first 2000s. Um, so, but uh, NASA actually developed one of the first uh, virtual reality headset uh, ever, like uh, came um, into reality, <laughs> and uh, 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 it's it, and it's like it's a tool that is extremely important. Uh, for the space sector for many reasons. So uh, as we say, um, as many of the, of the panelists uh, uh, like remarked today, um, I think like, it's important to understand that it's, it's why it's so difficult to uh, test things for space on Earth and that for the uh, like lack of those con like special conditions that the space environment presents. Uh, that can be like a microgravity or radiation um, or uh, uh, like mm, extreme temperatures. So uh, uh, XR and uh, virtual reality or mental reality, all these tools, they come very handy uh, to at least try to enhance this like um, uh, like a, this like a level of simulation. Uh, and so to make uh, human in the loop testing on Earth, on the ground, uh, like more similar in a certain way to what we, uh, to the conditions that we will find after, um, like uh, in space or on the planetary surface. So, uh, here I just listed some of the, uh, like, uh, important, uh, important aspect of uh, XR in, for the space sector. And uh, so the, the first, as I say, uh, just right now, it's uh, uh, the immersivity. So like this uh, capability to make the sp space uh, nearer to Earth in, in a way that like uh, uh, make the astronaut, uh, the astronaut or anyway, like uh, who um, experience those kind of simulations, feeling um, more like that they are not in a, in a ground environment. And so they, they feel like a, like they feel less distance with the final conditions. Uh, after we have uh, the possibility to simulate complex tasks, and this is a very important. Uh, it's usually like a, a, I noticed like a, a, um, investigating the different uses and scenarios of XR uh, for the space sector that is mostly based on mixed reality. Mixed reality, it's actually it's like a uh, it's a it's a word that like it's a term that was invented by Microsoft to describe uh, it's kind of like an halfway between the augmented reality and the virtual reality. So uh, we will uh, 
the difference between usually virtual reality and augmented reality is that augmented reality actually projects a digital layer on top of a, a semi-transparent screen like uh, uh, the HoloLens does, uh, while uh, virtual reality completely obscure our field of view and uh, like substitute our like uh, uh, video input with a digital uh, video input. Uh, the mixed reality is like mix the two things. So through usually uh, the use of pass-through cameras uh, on uh, if on top of the virtual reality asset, um, it allows us like uh, to still look at what we have uh, around us, uh, like uh, the, the real space around us, but at the same time, it will allow to overlap a very uh, realistic digital layer um, that can change the perception of, of the space around us. Uh, and <clears throat> so um, another big problem about usually simulation on Earth, especially when you are talking about digital simulations, is the physical interaction. And th that is the reason why we invented mockups. Uh, because during the testing, uh, uh, we need to interact with all this hardware uh, that uh, has been designed. So, like the physical interaction is a fundamental component uh, of um, of human in the loop testing. And um, so, the uh, I, 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 what makes very interesting XR uh, technologies for the space sector is that it's it's way cheaper and faster than mockups. Mockups like can take months or years to be built. They cost uh, a lot of money, and uh, also they are difficult to iterate. So once we build a mockup and we spend so much time and so much money on the mockup, it will be difficult to have an iterative design phase in which we rebuild a new mockup with the uh, that include like the um, some uh, design derived uh, assumption from the testing. Uh, <clears throat> So it's not iterative, uh, usually. The, like the, the physical mockup are less iterative. Um, instead, like with this ability to uh, like uh, shift immediately between digital and uh, and real, kind of, because it, it, it basically the virtual reality asset is streaking our eyes uh, to uh, to see something that is not there. Uh, it's very. It's like a, there is there is no middle layer. We go directly from the three D modeling. Uh, to the testing. Also, another important thing is that uh, usually it's, it's it's like it's less difficult to re to reproduce in uh, human in the loop testing in normal ground conditions is the, the disorientation uh, effect. So the disorientation uh, is basically generated by an impairment between the inputs uh, that we have from our senses and. Uh, uh, the like equilibrium uh, perceived by our ears and about by our brain, uh, uh, and that was like caused uh, caused the nausea also as well uh, for the astronauts, but also for people on board on ships, and in many other conditions like that. Uh, actually, uh, VR um, tricking our our like eyes does exactly that. So our brain, our ears, uh, they will perceive a, a certain. Um, a certain uh, balance that uh, it's impaired compared to the one that the uh, the virtual reality headset is showing us, and so that will uh, uh, really help us to reproduce that post disorientation effect that the astronaut would experience, especially in the first phases of the spacecraft. Um, also, the important thing is that uh, at the difference of other um, 
kind of testing, like for example, the neutral ebullience pool or, um, or like the mock-up testing, uh, uh, virtual reality can be used both on ground and in space uh, with literally no changes. So uh, the applications of XR in space, uh, there are many applications. The most, like, the most classical are usually the training and testing, um, but also uh, in the last years, other applications, they, uh, they like, become more common, uh, like for example, the robotic control, like teleoperations through virtual reality. Why that? Because uh, controlling a robot through virtual reality will allow us to have the sense of depth so it's so much easier to control uh, a manipulator, for example, when uh, if you are doing it through VR, because we will re perceive the uh, something that uh, that is depth, uh, that uh, it will not be perceived looking at the same uh, view of the arm, but from a, just like a screen. That is what like usually happen, for example, with Canada operations. Uh, and as after, uh, after like as you can see here in this image on the right. The announcement. So, like uh, uh, XR, AR, uh, VR, they can be used to enhance uh, human capabilities. Uh, <clears throat> for example, giving access to so much more information uh, in a short span of time or in a in a short space. Here, this is a <clears throat> one of the first iteration, I think, of the Jarvis uh, project. It's a NASA project, about like that uh, uh, is still pursuing the idea of overlapping uh, um, augmented reality information inside the helmets of the XME. So, uh, ah, the, I didn't talk about the most important uh, one for us today, that is the design. Um, this is a, a new concept and that's what we are working on because what we do at SIXA is design. Uh, so what we, um, we uh, I focus on uh, trying to understand how XR technologies can be used for design. So not for testing, not for training, but in the design phase. For this reason, we created what is called the, the XR design framework. Um, that is exactly like uh, now, okay, we have to describe it. Uh, and uh, that's like the, the next slides are exactly trying to do that, uh, what it is and what is has been made for. So the goal of this project were first is to create an uh, uh, XR infrastructure that will allow iterative design and testing of space hardware. This is the baseline of this project. Um, also, uh, through my going through my investigation of like uh, um, uses of this like um, uh, of XR technologies in the space sector, I noticed a, a common thread. Uh, that uh, there is a, a chaos around the idea on what to do with XR and how to validate uh, this technology for uh, space because there are no standards. Uh, there are no standards that allow to evaluate that uh, uh, evaluate space hardware uh, using XR. So, like also, this is the, one of the objectives of this project is to create like a, a standard procedure that will allow us to. Uh, go from the um, XR testing to the uh, to some design derived assumption in, uh, that can be used to um, like fix like certain design choices that uh, um, like uh, that like are not optimal uh, in that case. Um, the, the 
other point is to define a multi-mission procedure that's in framework based on agile machine exact technologies. So here we are more like uh, talking about so because uh, um, XR is an agnostic technology. Can do whatever is uh, So the question that we asked ourselves was uh, how XR uh, can be. Order to achieve different things. Like gravity dancing and. Victoria, your sound is quite yeah. bad. Yeah. You need to talk closer to the microphone or directly to the microphone. Yes. Yeah, you're asking me to, to, to talk nearer to the microphone? Yes. Yes, please. Ah, sorry. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, so the last point would be to um, so basically to create a framework that will allow in the future to apply because like uh, so the, the, the fact with the XR uh, that is a technology that is like uh, growing exponentially like uh, every year there are uh, new hardware, new softwares, new capabilities. So it's difficult to fix a standard procedure uh, in the moment in which um, this technology is evolving so fast. So I, uh, one of the objectives was exactly um, to create a, an environment in which we could implement, it's not like a, a ever uh, fixed standard, but it's a standard that allow for implementation of new technologies and new capabilities um, with, with minimal changes to the, to the procedures. So uh, to go for a definition, um, the XR design framework is both a virtual and physical space. And for virtual physical space, I mean uh, a place where a physical um, objects and digital ob object coexist. Uh, and at the same time, also a design standard or like a design validation standard. So it's not just like a a list of procedures to how to use uh, XR for the space sector. It's also a product uh, that is like a technology, a, a, like a, a piece of hardware, but also a piece of software. Um, so let's go into detail of it and let's see how it works. So here it was like a general photo of, uh, of the status of the of the, like this is what we're doing like a microgravity testing of the of the framework of the physical part of the framework. But so how it works, um, and I'm talking about the procedure side. So uh, we started from the the the, <coughs> the design and the, 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 the like the design process proposed in the system engineering handbook of NASA uh, that uh, described. Uh, the different interrelationships uh, between the, the different system design processes that act after they they like uh, they uh, they lead towards like the uh, the, the development of new space hardware. Uh, in this map, what we wanted, like we found, like what uh, like uh, our point of ingress, like in the system, uh, that was the design solution definition. Uh, that is should be an iterative loop. 
actually, uh, if you like, uh, it's not really as iterative as, as it was designed for. Um, because first, the iteration testing, the iterative testing is, is of the limit by the resources. So like, uh, if I, uh, uh, if, if for a project I have a certain budget, the iteration in the design will stop when the budget ends and not when the, pro the product is good. And this is like a, it's a common thing with the, in, a, in projects at NASA and not only. Uh, also, the problem is that the valuation system uh, here we can see evaluate is very subjective because it's based on basically on uh, uh, qualitative questionnaires. Um, after there is really no evidence that connected evaluation outcomes with the design derived assumption. So um, it's mostly like um, the people that look at the questionnaires, they come with some uh, uh, derived, uh, design derived assumption, but there is no scientific way to go from the point A to the point B uh, in this case. Um, after, like, uh, of course, because it's based on mock-up testing, uh, it's very complex. It's take a lot of time. Um, and so, like, uh, let's make it less iterative. And uh, as well, uh, the funny thing, it's usually, that was I said at the start, that basically the mock-up testing comes after the design. So usually, once that you build the mock-up, there is no more money to continue the iteration, the design, and so the design stopped there. Um, so in the moment in which the mockup is built, that's the order. There is no more. There are like a, no. There will be just very small changes after uh, after that. So we didn't want, of course, to like uh, erase a, a very um, well known and accepted uh, like design uh, iterations uh, standard. What we did, we created, uh, we created, uh, we created like a, a new overloop. So basically, we run in parallel uh, with this, like, uh, with this, with this, like, uh, design so the solution definition loop. So the, this, the for especially at the start, um, the system can the, the NASA design framework can still continue to go as as it is, but. Uh, we will perform our uh, XR uh, testing on parallel. So after this will be also very helpful, uh, very helpful to uh, confront and to uh, understand what are the differences, if there is a system that is more efficient than another, if there are specific conditions in, in which one system is more um, efficient than another. Uh, excuse me, Natario, uh, Alma, because we have five more speakers. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll go fast for now. So okay. I will not describe this. It was already planned. Um, Natario, can you one minute? One minute, finalize it. One minute. Sorry. Can you, one minute. Can you summarize it? Yes. Um, one minute. Five minutes. It's fine. One. One. Sorry. Oh, one minute. Okay. No, Natario, it's one minute. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, I don't, I don't hear very well. Sorry. Um, so the the the, uh, the design uh, the, the, um, the the framework has like multiple capabilities, as I said. Both for uh, we use like a, a a crane for microgravity testing, um, and I wanted to show the capabilities. And here you can see in this video. So here, for example, you can see 
how using the framework in, in this in this case on a, on a lunar simulation, we we have on the left side on the right side the view of the of the uh, of the tester of the user, and on the left we see the real user performing the action overlapped to his environment from multiple points of view possibly. Um, so that's allow a level of interaction and uh, um, that was never allowed before without the, the needs to build a, a high fidelity mockup. Sorry, I go. About the development, uh, these were like the three stages. So today, as today, we've completed uh, the project, uh, like we completed the construction. Um, and as this is the hardware that you use, this, these are the, the tracker. The tracker, we use them to bind the digital object with the physical object. As you can see here, there is one of the tracker mounted on a PGT drill. So like when the, the, the person will hold the drill, uh, they will see a very high fidelity um, uh, digital uh, model of the drill in, in the VRCC. And this can be applied to basically everything. CTB boxes, MDLE uh, drawers, uh, or like pieces of rover, so of hardware experiments. Thank you. Thank you, Ontario. Sorry. To conclude, uh, the next step will be the, uh, the the big first test campaign that is based on the Boeing project that uh, Dr. Banova was showing before. Uh, we will continue building these mockups uh, that are low fidelity mockups because the, the purpose is exactly that, that we can build low fidelity mockups uh, that are very fast to build and uh, still use them as an high fidelity mockup. And the last a very important step is that we will expand the, uh, uh, the, 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 the uses of the framework, not only to space out the design that we do right, uh, right now, but also to mission testing and also to test the robotic operation. And I think that was it. Thank you. Thank you, Vitario. Thank you, Alma. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you have Thank questions, you. I don't know if you have time for questions, but. Matu, do we have time for a question or do we proceed? We don't have time. Oh, well, we love Vittorio and we're yeah. happy that he has his green card. And we want to congratulate him on that. And uh, we'll proceed because Ken is, Ken is whipping us to get moving here. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank, thank yes, so, let's go. Please welcome to type in the chat or Q&A for Vitario. So Vitario yes. can okay. uh, by chat. Okay, go ahead, Matu. Matu, can I... Can I announce you? Sure. Yes. Well, uh, I would just like to say before I announce you that I will be uh, also quietly leaving after this. Uh, the session two is finished when you are also finished. So uh, I wish you um, uh, fun in further uh, presentations. So uh, Madhu Tangavelu conducts the ASTE 527 Graduate Space Concept Synthesis, Synthesis Studio in the Department of Astronautical Engineering within the Viterbi School of Engineering. And he teaches space architecture in the School of Architecture at the University of Southern California. He is on the faculty of International Space University based in Strasbourg, France. He is on the board of directors of the National Space Society and is vice president of NSS for India region and the North American Activities Coordinator for the Moon Village Association. Madhu, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Alma. We are all going to rush through because, uh, as you know, we blew our schedule long ago. Yes, and, uh, yes, we did. 
<laughs> you know, run through a couple of slides. I won't talk too many. And uh, let's hope we can uh, close up quickly. So now, uh, right. um, thank you for the introduction, Alma. Now, what I will do is quickly go through this project, which we call Buscraft. And the idea is to look at um, what we can do now, not tomorrow, not day after, but what we could have done yesterday. So with that, I'll start with this. Buscraft is an idea for an evolution for a sturdy cislunar cycle to enhance permanent lunar settlement. It was presented at the ASIM conference and the IUC and so on. Um, you know, USC has a long history with, uh, uh, with uh, the moon. Uh, Neil Armstrong was our uh, alumnus, and that is his thesis. Students come to class from all over the world. This is a group from uh, London, UCL London. So USC has a wonderful program. Um, it is very small, very tight, and extremely selective in hardcore engineering. And we are growing our, um, our student body. But unfortunately, um, we are also are, are very tight in who we recruit into the program. So the AST studio, which I conduct, is emplaced within this uh, astronautical engineering program. And the focus is very simply on imagination and creativity. No holes board. We don't care what the agency is doing, except we steal from them when we can. But uh, in general, it is independent of agency or industry. We have good friends, and, um, and as, as I said, Neil Armstrong was the commander and the pilot of Apollo 11 is a good friend of our studio. He comes there unannounced because his uh, honorarium can sink us uh, in a very short period of time. So you'll see people here from faculty, you'll see doctors, engineers, lawyers, cinematographers, and my own students, they come back to get a dose of creativity and invention. Uh, so this happens, this happens in the fall. In the spring, I step into my alma mater, which is a school of architecture. And there they ask me real down-to-earth questions. Again, the students from, from, come from all over the world including my whole professor, he's still there. And uh, we have students from, including some people who talked in our, in our um, presentation today. I see, uh, I see uh, Melody there. And uh, if you look at it, a major university always has world-class students from all over the world. And I feel it's a privilege to be, uh, uh, you know, doing this work between the School of Architecture and the School of Engineering. Now, architects remind me of something that is very down to earth, and that is the space community is tiny. It's a fraction of the industry base on the planet. We look upwards and outwards with questions, while most of humanity, including civil architects and engineers, look downward and earthward for solutions. 
Now, you know, the United Nations has put out the Sustainable Development Goals, and our architects are really interested to know if space architects do something like this, and I keep telling them every single one of these numbers are somehow or the other associated with space architecture. Most important being sustainability, because many of the things we design may not be sustainable. Now, there is economic, political, cultural, and most importantly now, environmental sustainability. How are you going to fly through all this muck and go places and come back without getting hit by orbital debris? It's a question all of us need to think about. It's also part of what we call the environmental protection uh, arena. Now, in terms of sustainability, the environmental sustainability is popping up all over the place, not only in orbit, not only in Earth orbit, but also on planet Earth. You want to look at Johan Holmstrom's work and you'll see uh, how we are measuring up our planet. So that's why the architects are, in my case, all the time asking, why are we doing going out into space when there are a lot of problems on planet Earth? I keep telling them that innovation is the key. The human mind and the human spirit can, has gone through so many difficult bottlenecks. I think we can do the same again with just innovation. Please take a look at our books. These are the books that we uh, use in our classroom. Second edition is on the right, and the third edition is in the works. Our friend wrote the foreword, and Buzz Aldrin keeps telling me all the time, competition during design phase and collaboration during execution. And I want to remind you right now, Artemis and Gateway are all pretty much in the competition during design phase. So we want your clever new ideas to make it sustainable. Take a look at our archives. I'll leave it for 15 seconds here. Um, take a picture and go look at the last few uh, projects that have been posted, including including the 2022 Chase 2, in which we really bring out commercial human space flight as the, the thing that can save us and drive us quickly towards uh, permanent human presence in space. Buscraft is an idea to build up our stack, the spacecraft, in lower orbit as opposed to flying large chunks into lunar orbit. Now, all of you need to know, the work that we do at USC is current. It's not tomorrow or day after, but what we can do right now. And right now, we are looking at Artemis and Gateway. And you know what? It's happening right now during what is peaking out to be solar maximum. So what do we do? In the bus craft idea, we fly spacecraft into low Earth orbit and into geostationary orbit and get data about radiation, deep space radiation. We do not have to go to the moon to get deep space radiation data, which is critical to human survival. 
in long duration flight. Once we do that, once we do that, we start to go to the next part, which is to use what we call LEO to lunar orbit cycling. And they, all of these things are elements that are either available, existing, certified, and commissioned, or in the process of commissioning. As I said, just a mile down the road from here is SpaceX, and they have some of the most reliable launchers ever to be on planet Earth. You're looking at Falcon 9, and I think in the next few days, you'll see Falcon Heavy roll into the skies again. And uh, oh, but just with these two of the Falcon series, you can fly to the moon and back. Of course, this will come online, I think in a few days, uh, uh, you know, uh, if air is cleared for flight, notice the mariners around the globe have gone out and we hope to see the new generation of fully reusable vehicles, but we don't need this to go to the moon right now. We can make do with Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. What would we do in phase one? We'd fly a vehicle like the stack on the right side, it'd go into low Earth orbit, from low Earth orbit, we'd cycle through the Van Allen belts for as long as we like, and then go to the geostationary orbit. And with that, we can study a lot about deep space radiation. In phase two, we go to the right side and build the bus craft um, stack in low Earth orbit, and we go from low Earth orbit to low lunar orbit and back. This is what a notional, um, a notional trajectory would look like. Uh, we are still struggling with it, but I know there are there are things. We have people like Adamo. I think I think uh, Ken will bring him here, uh, who will be looking at these uh, kinds of. Uh, um, trajectories. The main idea here is not to put people into lunar orbit very early on when there is very little help for them to, to bring them back in case of anomaly. Remember, it is, it is uh, solar cycle 25, maximum coming up exactly during the time we want to fly, we want to fly humans uh, into uh, lunar orbit and back. So what do we do? We have a system where you have a cycler that goes around the moon and back every two weeks. So during those two weeks, you'll have intercepts of the moon every week. And as they fly back through the earth, we have a, a high energy rendezvous, change our things. We have put plants and animals there before humans so that we can take a look at how they behave before we put people in orbit. And in case, God forbid, there is a CME or a, some kind of a flare that affects, we can quickly bring our crew down. How do you handle the propulsion requirements? TEI can be done using modular cluster propulsion. Again, we are not going to throw stages into heliocentric orbits or lunar orbits and crashing stages into the moon. We want to have lunar orbit. And the secret to that happened last year, late last year. It's called the uh, inflatable atmospheric accelerator. We've known that uh, we can do uh, aero brakes for a long time, and we want to introduce the aero brake, um, the, the 
uh, atmospheric accelerator into the system to bring back the modular clusters and refurbish and reuse them for flight. We will not be using any more expendable vehicles. We are going to go through these because these are very well studied problems. What is the maximum benefit of bus craft? If we do things in low Earth orbit and integrate the stack in low Earth orbit, many nations of the world can be part of this program. And there are many launch vehicles and many launch sites from where we can fly. So there's a truly an international, uh, international endeavor. Of course, the important thing is to know that the lunar orb, the plane of the moon, is very close to equatorial plane, not very, not very interesting for the International Space Station. So we have to fly in what we call the free return trajectory. NASA wants to go out of the free return trajectory and go to the polar regions, which we will do at some point in time, but not while we are testing a new set of vehicles. We want to go fly in the equatorial plane and make use of the free return trajectory, exactly like Apollo did. Now, as you know, Orion, the first flight of Artemis 1 was on, the, um, on that plane with the free return trajectory. Second one, two, will fly. Third one is the problem. The moment you leave the, Ecuador, the lunar plane, you are asking for a lot of energy to get out and get back in. I also think, we also think, that using uh, optical links is the way to go. Because optical way, optical communication serves as the backbone of planet Earth right now. We are going to use laser comm, and it's already happening here at SpaceX, as well as uh, other areas. And we hope to use that as the carrot to bring people together in the Artemis Accords, which is struggling with about 20 or 23 people. Uh, signatories, we want to raise it to 60 or 70 in a matter of a year. So what are the recommendations? First of all, we need to tell a really nice story. You cannot go to a dark place called the South Polar region of the moon and hope to have beautiful visuals of people working in pitch black, extremely cold environments. We want to use existing assets and we want to get deep space radiation dragon out of the question even before we go to the moon. So there are many things that we need to do, but we've not gotten there like uh, Pram, we're going to do that, but we were studying all these things at USC. In conclusion, I would recommend that we return to the moon now. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next month, next year, and uh, next Christmas and so on. Many conferences and meetings coming up. I hope we'll see you there, or you will see us there. And again, competition during design phase, collaboration during execution. And we did not use Buzz Orin, but if you look at his T-shirt, he'll tell you, he'll tell you that we want to go to Mars, but if you ask him a little question, a little, little detail, he'll tell you, we are not going to Mars without stepping on the moon and 
really studying the operational aspects of lunar surface activities. Please go on here, take a look. And that's just my presentation. Thank you. How long did you do? Oh, good. Okay, so guys, hold on tight. I know we are losing okay. folks. <laughs> okay, we are directly going to some spectacular, I wouldn't call them newcomers, but they are um, very effective uh, players in the space architecture community, and we wholly welcome them to join the SATC and present their works. But I want to take the first digs at some of these wonderful people uh, who are doing very special things that would be uh, very useful for us uh, uh, in the uh, in this very youthful endeavor. But first would be Kaya, who is dialing in from Australia. Uh, are you where are you in Australia, Kaya? Tell me again. You're not at RMIT, but you are at Deakin University. Where? Yeah. Uh, still Melbourne and Geelong, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, and uh, it's a beautiful day there. Or wait a minute, what's the time? <laughs> it's uh, nine. It's nine sixteen a.m. It's cloudy day, and I think it's half raining. So, but it's okay. Uh, you're looking good, uh, Kaya. Uh, Kaya is a um, is a lecturer uh, in uh, industrial systems, right? In uh, yeah, design. And uh, uh, she has some very interesting angles on all of these things that we do in space architecture. She wants us to bring space architecture down to earth. And uh, she's already been uh, uh, discussing this with our own folks here uh, in Southern California at the, the, the um, Science Museum and so on. Uh, welcome, uh, Kaya, please go on. Let's do this in 10 minutes flat. Okay, I'll try my best. Um, so um, thank you everyone um, for inviting me. Um, I wish to begin by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the lands, um, waterways and airways on which um, I'm actually presenting here in NARM in Melbourne, Australia. I also paid my respects to elders past, present and emerging of all the country on which we do uh, our business today. So addressing individual differences and culture diversity becomes crucial as human space exploration advances. Our initiative emphasizes the importance of personalized meaningful experiences for astronauts on long duration isolated missions and individuals living in socially isolated, and, and isolated environments on earth. So um, as you're familiar with um, uh, NASA identifies five hazards of human spaceflight. And uh, the project uh, that uh, we are um, proposing aims to develop heritage-based immersive digital solutions that enhance the well-being of astronauts during extended space missions. So the focus will be on enriching everyday activities, such as eating, um, through heritage-inspired multi-sensory extended reality experiences. 
So those will be supported by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, this experience will be developed and utilized to monitor the well-being um, of astronauts, such as their emotional states, in a, obviously in objective way. So to achieve this goal, um, novel and unique XR experiences will be designed and developed in collaboration with museums and indigenous knowledge holders. Um, so furthermore, as we um, uh, design for space, we also need to spin off technologies. So these immersive eating experiences um, can um, help uh, people in isolated environments um, in, uh, on Earth. For example, if we think of um, people in prisons, in um, uh, elderly or similar um, experiences are already uh, being developed for um, older adults, as you can see uh, here. Um, XR eating experiences will be tested with culturally diverse uh, museum visitors, um, uh, also in uh, analog missions, and later we hope to develop solutions for future long duration space missions. But first, um, it's really important to test um, using um, science, uh, citizen science approach um, within museum settings to boost uh, audience engagement and to get a very diverse um, data from uh, people um, coming to the museums. Um, the increasing diversity in space exploration necessitates a deeper understanding of cultural context and diverse backgrounds when designing um, for well-being solutions for astronauts. So for instance, Artemis uh, program aims to land the first woman and the first person of color on the moon. And on the other side, uh, Australia, one of the first partner um, <clears throat> countries to sign the Artemis Accords, is also preparing to send its first female astronauts into space, showcasing the country's commitment to um, contributing to global space exploration efforts. So the National Indigenous Space Academy is another initiative highlighting the importance of diversity and inclusion by uh, embracing a holistic perspective on a sense of place and a unique Australian perspective. So just recently in March 2023, um, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson um, announced this um, program. So astronauts report challenges such as loneliness, boredom, discomfort, sensory deprivation, um, and diminished cognitive performance and stresses while in orbit. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you can read about this uh, in astronauts' biographies by Cristoforetti and others. Then if we think about emerging research from analog missions, they also suggest that uh, nature-based XR experiences can improve mood in um, isolated and confined and extreme environments, or ICE as we call them, particularly uh, when they are tailored um, to personal preferences. Then um, also there is a growing evidence or that uh, visiting museums, galleries, and historic environments can have positive psychological effects that can be explored further 
for uh, use in human spaceflight. As pointed out by Dwayne Hampshire, indigenous knowledges provide solutions to sustainable living, uh, adapting to changing environments and maximizing the health of the land on a continental scale. So duration of this project lies in the um, potential of sand enhanced XR experiences to address challenges faced by astronauts. So the sense of smell plays a crucial role in our everyday lives, significantly uh, influencing uh, emotions, uh, memories, and well-being. So incorporating into XR experiences, um, this can enhance presence and immersion, resulting in more realistic and engaging experiences. So researchers have previously uh, um, emphasize the importance of enabling personalization to allow uh, individuals to enjoy their own preferences for familiar and pleasant night-based um, plant aromas. And Madhu has been working on this uh, as well, as I believe. Um, an artist, Carrie Peterson, has also explored um, scents for space travelers, as well as for refugees and immigrants. Um, so her project uh, is called Homesickness um, Kit, and uh, you can find more about uh, this on her website. So this approach has highlighted the need for tailored and user-centered perspectives when designing scent enhanced XR experiences for uh, diverse heritage groups. Integrating scent elements into XR experiences uh, requires innovative approaches and technologies. Immersive exhibitions such as Van Gogh Alive use natural sense to uh, enhance XR museum experiences. And uh, there are various researchers um, who are also looking at how multisensory VR can support astronauts um, during those long duration missions uh, incorporating sense in nature-based uh, experiences. Um, speaking of food, uh, food provides a natural environment for exploring cultural heritage without provoking conflicts during, uh, due to diverse backgrounds. Inherently social uh, in nature, mealtimes offer opportunities for sharing experiences and fostering connections. As a result, meal environments can be utilized to facilitate relationships between crew members or with family and friends on Earth using food and eating experiences and culture uh, activity to enhance social interaction and elevate feelings of isolation. So cultural heritage is initially linked to identity and the sense of smell has the power to evoke memories and strengthen uh, one's sense of identity. So um, as partly Slovenian, um, I um, wanted to show, for example, um, NASA astronauts, uh, who is also Slovenian and Indian descent, took the traditional Slovenian uh, Kransky sausage to the ISS, which is quite a known story um, in our country. So by emphasizing heritage, diversity, inclusion, um, and the notion that space is a domain for all, this project recognizes the importance of cultural context in designing immersive experiences. So on the left, you can see our colleague Julia testing such a dining experience in Japan. Um, the exercise, oh, sorry, the experience uh, by well-known uh, team lab 
incorporates seasonality as well as uh, culture during uh, sharing um, shared eating. So uh, the significance and innovativeness of this research proposal um, stem from its interdisciplinary approach. And this, this collaborative efforts uh, highlights the importance of diversity and inclusion within the space sector. So drawing upon underutilized resources like indigenous knowledges, as well as culture and psychological benefits of uh, museums. So the project addresses five objectives to create personalized uh, heritage-based XR or during experiences um, for astronaut dining experiences for astronauts. So first, we want to understand meaningful XR elements uh, suitable for future diverse crew of astronauts. Then develop an AI-based model to monitor smell and emotional responses using um, the developed meaningful XR elements um, that use uh, artificial intelligence as well. So XR content and uh, feasibility of attachments for enhancing the sense of presence will then be developed. And this will be tested in space analogs in a larger cultural context, such as uh, in museums by using a citizen science approach. To conclude, um, the main aim of the project is to develop technological and um, content solutions for stimulating multisensory uh, extended reality intervention during food and meal experiences in isolated, non-stimulating environment. So uh, this project has uh, received its first uh, seed funding from our university. And I would also like to thank uh, our core researchers for their passion and expertise. And uh, also, uh, we have received uh, two Deacon Coventry uh, PhD Cotter scholarships. So uh, perhaps if anyone knows anyone interested, we are currently looking for two um, positions. Uh, we got two open positions, one for VR designer and another for AI developer to join our team, uh, both in Australia and in the UK. And then um, the students will swap. Uh, also, uh, a short uh, invite uh, to our, um, um, we would be part of an event here uh, at the Science Works in um, uh, one of the um, uh, museums uh, in, in Melbourne as part of Melbourne Design Week. So if you want to join online, um, Sustainable Design Beyond Earth, it's our session during the future forums. So thank you so much uh, for your time and I hope it was quick enough. Oh, very nice, Kaya, thank you very much. So many questions about XR for you and Vittorio, but I email, email those to you and uh, we'll have a good discussion because uh, there is so much of, so much of psychology that we need to look into delve into. But thank you very much. Um, we are not going to be taking questions, but please, uh, shoot questions on, on chat, and I'm sure Kai will respond. Uh, with that, we're going to my friend, uh, um, Samer, right? Samer is uh, unusually gifted designer and architect, and he's coming to us, I believe, uh, hooking up from uh, 
the wonderful, uh, famous place called Alexandria. And are you there, Samir? Yes, can you hear me now? Oh, very well. Good to okay. see you, my friend. Uh, uh, take it ahead. Again, we want to rush through 10 minutes and off, on and off because the library is going to kick us out. Okay. <laughs> okay go for I'll it. I'll try to do that. Thank you so much for having me today, guys. And just let me share my screen to start right away. So my presentation today, uh, I'll just skip the technical part that I've already been presented so much uh, in the previous uh, presentation. So just let me dig it to the, 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 the different part or the core unique part. So my presentation today is called Rationalizing Nature. I do believe in natural-based solutions in space exploration and in designing space habitats. So, I'm sorry, is it moving? Okay, so uh, just to uh, summarize or to start with my manifesto, I do believe in the in uh, the quote of Le Corbusier, the father of the modern architecture, when he said that, you know, it is always life that is right and the architect who is wrong. So he, he implied that working in alignment with nature is the core essence of the modern architecture. And uh, that resulted after like five or 6,000 years of uh, uh, sharing accumulation of experiences until we reached that conclusion. So the first thing is digging deep. This is my own manifesto in three steps, digging deep in the old knowledge and science accumulated through thousands and maybe millions of years to capture hidden values and intangible strengths of our nature-based systems. And the step two is developing those values and strengths using cutting edge technologies to create a state of art design that carries the mentorship acquired from nature, not in its shape or form, but in its experience and core science. And the third phase, and the last one is documenting and publishing those experiments to deliver them to the future generations. And one of those manifestations are the presentation of that I'll be delivering today, in addition to papers, exhibitions, conferences, whatever, I, I can uh, uh, just send my message to the future. So the presentation today will start uh, with a project that uh, I've been awarded just a couple of months away, last December, in, in an international uh, com space competition uh, called Jack Rigéry competition in Paris. And I was fortunate enough to be granted the grand prize. And starting from the next year, I'll be assigned as a, as a judge in the this same international competition after seven years of winning uh, with them. So what is the what is the story of um, Mars reefs? Well, uh, this the new thing is here that uh, even if it started with, as a fun project, that but I try to use the AI. Uh, including chat GPT, uh, image text generators, just to stimulate and start brainstorming, unlocking synergies to understand how can I approach an, a space habitat with a new vision. Um, uh, just to mention that uh, the colonies that I'll be presenting is uh, classified according to anthropologists as the third phase uh, colonization, which means that it will be a permanent residence and it will be using the third class architecture, which is the ISRU or in situ resource utilization in collaboration in, in um, uh, with the first class maybe on the second class so it is a hybrid class so after asking JGBT, can coral reefs offer us a solution as as it is considered as one of the most uh, durable and sustainable form of uh, colonies that carries various life forms and really the the answer was uh, for me satisfying especially point number four and point number five when it referred to that coralries are essential ecosystems that provide habitats, habitats for a ver variety of marine life. Architects can incorporate sustainable design principles out of them into their compositions. They, they resisted all kinds of existential risks that could be 
really uh, imagined and they might stay for like hundreds of years and can uh, host all of those various life forms with a minimal impact on nature. So the, the, the second point, which the function, the corollaries also provide a range of functions, protection from storms, erosions, as well as opportunities for creations and tourism. So that was the first inspiration. And then switching to the text image generators, which are trying to understand the classification of those kind of coral reefs until I reached my uh, destination, which is the brain coral reef. And here comes the, the way of rationalizing nature. The rate, nature is not chaotic, but uh, it is random a little bit. So uh, randomness is okay, randomness. You can put rules and theories and you can uh, take out, uh, you can reproduce nature of understanding its algorithms. So switching again to chat GPT and, ask, and asking them, can I really rationalize nature? And the interesting uh, answer came in, in branching in understanding how the branching, the interconnectedness and the repetition of elements can work out. And uh, according to my experience and some of my professor colleagues that are specializing in shape grammars and I switch to them, asking them for guidance. And we start understanding more about shape grammar. And I found that putting some rules and some vocabulary in collaboration with each other can really, I can really reproduce nature. And the, the rules came in the scale and the proportion and the orientation. Switching again, and this is maybe the major slide that uh, I try to rationalize nature, nature to take out um, vocabulary out of them and to set out rules to reproduce them and uh, to reproduce a durable and sustainable system that can maneuver all geographical and harsh environments and at the same time provideth, provide me with an ISRU uh, solution, just like the coral reef as considered as an ISRU colony. In, in from uh, a solution that Mother Nature offered us. And it is just about in, in front of our eyes thousands of years ago, but we didn't really appreciate. So by setting out those five, uh, five first vocabulary and then extending them to uh, another 10 vocabulary with the, their different rules, I started providing or designing the, the colony with a consistency to, to make it easier for the class one, the class one architecture to be inserted inside this ISRU uh, colony. Switching again to, to the text image generators AI to understand the solid and void relationship between both of them. And later on, uh, that was the born, uh, uh, the birth of the project uh, Mars Reefs. So also again, the quality of the interior spaces is another uh, important part, the humane part. We are not just providing storage for human beings or homo sapiens. We have to provide them with a human experience one that can resist the different psychological uh, problems that astronauts might face for a long-term durations. And from here, I start understanding that I have to allocate each, uh, each part of uh, the architecture program, the architecture requirements, and in a unique experience as well. Uh, you can see from this slide on the right that uh, this is a hybrid class, class one architecture, the uh, pressurized uh, modules that is inserted inside uh, a high rep of uh, ISRU 3D printed um, uh, colony just to provide it with uh, enough protection against radiation and against uh, micrometeoroids and so on. And at the same time, it could be also providing shelter for the uh, pressurized rovers beneath, just beneath uh, the, the main shelter and to decrease a little bit the sandstorms and to decrease uh, many of the hazards that can affect the electronic parts of those rovers. 
with a very high and very long rods uh, that will be escalating and vibrating with a piezoelectric energy uh, enough to start powering the colony with a passive long-term solution in case that the solar panels could be covered with a Martian regulus according to the long-term storms of the Martian environment. So trying to uh, find solutions for, for, for the future. Switching again to the AI and I started uh, searching for solutions for the uh, uh, infinite connections of those modules. And um, I found, of course, uh, prompting and uh, trying to insert the right prompts to the AI. I found my solution in the AC ducts. It is the most likely uh, and similar solution to the uh, pressurized modules of class one architecture. So I tried and I prompted and it resulted in maybe more than 1,200 piece of image that have just reduced to those two images. And I started designing the, the interconnections and the branching system of, of uh, the pressurized modules that will be housed inside it. And then later on, I housed all of this colony just above a, low, a Martian lava cave. So we have like two parts of the colony, one above the surface, which is the ISRU, 3D printed part, and the another one which will be dedicated only for the farm farming solutions uh, inside the Martian lava cave. And uh, this this particular part was uh, awarded in 2017 in Marseille Design, the first award energy uh, inflatable energy uh, category for producing a farm unit, a food production unit, an inflatable lightweight capsule that will be equipped with all nutrients and ingredients and it, it will be uh, operating with a zero waste and zero energy requirements. So it will be escalating and it will be producing its own energy. And at the same time, those contoured lines will is the LED lighting system that will be providing all of the farm, uh, the plants inside it with a, uh, enough light to uh, overcome the photosynthesis deprivation that's due to the solar uh, due to the storm uh, Martian storms that will be depriving the plants from enough sun rays. So uh, trying to insert it just above the skylights of the collapsed openings of the Martian uh, lava cave. And this will be most of the process in, in four steps, detecting the appropriate uh, skylight and just trying to insert the infrastructure of the pressurized pods before reinforcing the, uh, the, uh, the outer surface and then covering it with regolith and then just uh, leaving the openings for the echopods or the hydroponics pods to pop up and start gaining the uh, sun rays for the photosynthesis. And this is a double layered, by the way, inflatable with an aerogel inserted between them just to protect also the plants from uh, the cosmic radiations or the solar flare that might result on the Martian surface. Uh, it will be inserted strategically uh, in a circular formation just to ensure that uh, it will be uh, provided equally to the colonists or to the astronauts uh, around surrounding. And there will be like uh, two main farmlands and another uh, main farmland uh, beneath uh, the surface in the Martian lava cave. This is the allocation of the site. And uh, as you can find here that uh, there is a diversity. I try to diversify between the powering systems. So the main or the first power system will be the solar-based satellites in the low Mars orbit. But the main solar power will be the kilopower unit that will be allocated remotely a little bit, just in case uh, any emergency that might occur. And of course, the one that I have mentioned earlier, which is the oscillating piezoelectric rods that will be also generating energy in case that there is a sun deprivation and the solar panels might not be functioning. Later on, 
surface solar panels could also be uh, added to the whole system. It is very important and crucial to, to diversify between power because, because power uh, is a critical um, decision. Without power, the, the, the colonists will not be uh, able to, to live. Power is important for the oxygen generation, for the water generation, for powering the farms, for, for keeping the temperature, for even operating the whole system. So it is very important just not to put all of the egg in one basket. Uh, that was not the only solution. Before it, it uh, there is another awarded a project called the Iris. And Iris in the Greek mythology is uh, the personification of the messenger of gods. And that was the first infrastructure that I do believe it will be connecting moon, earth, and Mars together. So it is working in alignment with the Greek mythologies. But also it, uh, it has another aspect, which is the Iris of the eye. And that is the, another biomimicry or another natural-based solution. So this lunar elevator that I'm presenting now is not only an infrastructure to connect Moon, Mars, and Earth, it will also be acting as a, a deep space telescope, as a scientific facility in, in addition to its uh, industrial facility. It will be, main, uh, it will be uh, operating majorly on helium-3 components, and that will be the, the, the main resource that will be paying for the whole party. The investments in, the, in shipping the lunar, the helium-3 back to Earth and maybe even to Mars, it will be uh, the main reason uh, to find enough funding and uh, investments in such uh, a project. So that is the subsurface, or this is the, the above surface. It has another part, which is the under uh, underground or under the lunar surface in another Mars Tranquilitatis uh, pit crater. So that will be capping the pit crater just to provide it with shelter and to start another life. And by the way, the combination of those projects uh, just recently, three days ago, um, it was promoted as a winner in the Promo Moon Initiative in phase one, and I'm developing it right now um, for the final uh, final stage. So that will be the, uh, the Lunar Lava Cave also, and it is called the Lunar Oasis. And the Lunar Oasis is a self-sustaining also. It's a zero energy, zero waste, circular economy, circular closed loop system, and it is based on many driving force. The, the first one, the first inspiration with the oasis, the first form of life. The second one with the circular geometry or the circular uh, formation, which is hard, uh, hardwired in our uh, brain with the uh, sense of tribe, family. Uh, even when we use the, the notion in our uh, words, when we say circle of trust, circle of friends, circle of uh, family. The third is driving force with the anthropization, like terracing mountains for farmland, which was converted by the parametric design into contours for the ease of uh, construction and maintenance. And the fourth driving force with the ant colonies, also another uh, super sophisticated form of uh, habitats in, uh, offered by nature. And it can also resist all kinds of existential risks for those little, little fellas. The fifth and the final driving force is something also uh, which is considered to be uh, pre uh, something in, from uh, inspired from our ancient civilizations is the sacred geometry, the, which is known as the cosmogenesis geometry or the cosmogenetic architecture. So all of those driving forces resulted in the form finding of the the lunar oasis project, which will be divided into eight sectors and eight independent decentralized uh, life support system. Just in case of one of the system might face a failure or something, for God forbid. So all of the system will be carrying. Uh, each other as a one huge network, but with a decentralized sectors. 
Switching from space technology, we have learned a lot from NASA spin-off technologies. We have to start designing Earth habitats with the same mindset. And for me, I am not 100% space architect. I also use, I also work for a terrestrial architecture. So I had the responsibility to to just convey this knowledge into our uh, Earth architecture and start designing Earth habitats with a fresh and new mindset, the mindset of a space architect, but working for Earth. So those are some of the projects. I don't have the privileges of time to present all of them, but I'll just refer to quick samples out of them. So one of those samples is the Square Project, the one that I have highlighted with the color, the red color. The Square Project, it is a very minimalistic and very um, uh, small house or habitat that is considered to be a zero energy. It will be producing its own food. So it contains its own food production unit. Also, it will be collecting water from the rainwater management system and from the fog and dew also uh, uh, water. It is a zero energy, it's a food production, it is a water securing, so it is a decentralized form of housing that we should uh, design. It is an off-grid and it should be designed as an off-grid so you can build it in anywhere without, uh, without the connection to any governmental grid, either it is water or infrastructure like electricity or whatever. That is part of the research that has been 50 design criteria that were derived in the last 10 years from, from my uh, for work and research just to design this simple white box. So as simple as it might seem, but it is it carries the most sophisticated research work from the last 10 years. And this is the site. This is, this is what is considered to be a harsh environment, but harsh environment on earth, extreme poverty, extreme uh, and... Uh, a contagious and sickness that is spreading out and no resources. And so this is a harsh environment. We, we right, we are designing for space, but we also we have to consider our current society and communities on Earth. And that was the mind of the space Arctic. That is the International Space Life Support System. That is the same diagram that we're that was simplified to redesign that habitat on Earth. So this is the part of the formation process of the food production unit. It will be a pigeon tower, which is a very uh, ancient practice in Middle East here. And uh, it is uh, considered to be an economic um, uh, activity and at the same time uh, securing some of the proteins for the residents. But also there are hydroponics units of the same time. And it is also uh, containing a stairs or a vertical circulation with a rainwater collection unit and a wind catcher. And after laying out the main conceptual design, I had to test that design just in order to make sure that it will be functioning at least according to digital simulations as it is intended to be. And referring also to many of the references, I do, by the way, define myself as a scientist and an architect. I use science for producing architecture and after making this architecture, I turn it again into science through papers and conferences. So it's a cycle, it's a closed cycle from science to architecture from again from architecture to science. Most of those simulations was done during the last year, even after this project was awarded the first prize, but the work in progress is never ended. My client is not a specific client, but it's it's dedicated for humanity, for my community, from society, from next generations. This is the main calculation and offering several solutions, one of the facades and the other on the roof, in case that it will be a multi-floor building. Also, it is designed with different scenarios. Uh, the humane part, the delightful part, the venistusis, according to uh, Vitruvius, which is the art, also inspired from the local pop art of this place and uh, simplifying that 
art pieces into just four primary colors that was used in the lightscape study just to give them an everyday celebration to to um, to embrace and to elevate their psychological part as a human beings and designing it with extreme adaptability and flexibility just to ensure that it will be facing various urban scenarios and successfully it can deliver urban uh, solutions and uh, this is not a, a solid block it is a porous mess that can embrace biodiversity embrace wind and embrace the nature and offering inside its vertical courtyard uh, a frame of nature so as if you are capturing the views of nature also inside your ha habitat or uh, house this is a depictions of the solutions and in different urban scenarios one of the uh, in a farmland and, and another and even uh, after the project has been awarded, many simulations and again, the research work is, is uh, uh, working on. That was not the only solution. Before it preceded uh, House of Suhaimi, which is also considered to be a zero energy, zero waste, decentralizing housing prototype that is designed for three different generations uh, to live inside the same uh, mess. You can find here uh, upward the farm. It is not a hydroponic system, rather it is a complete farm roof farm system with a, a solar panels that can secure from about 10 to 10.5 kilowatt uh, of uh, power electrical power per day for uh, the residents and having passive solutions for the ac system and everything and imagine Thank this you. is another exp also awarded yeah. project for arizona uh, environment and this is another one for the german uh, uh, environment in a city called Cottbus. it was designed for Cottbus and it it was designed to face the the pandemic or the pathogenic explosion that happened in 2020. So it is also using a lot of technology. And by the way, this is not glass. This is called uh, alum, aluminum oxynitride. It is considered to be transparent aluminum or transparent metal, one of the uh, top-notch technologies that have occurred uh, till now. And it can also uh, resist all kind of uh, intrusions or uh, impacts. In, and it's considered to be a structure system, but it is as well transparent. And learning from space architecture are very important lessons. So each space or each room is a complete uh, closed uh, pod, and and uh, you can transport transport even your rooms to capture the view that you'd like to have. And learning also um, from the hygienic principles, uh, designing the WC system with a spherical, just to gather all microbial life form at its end. To, to make it easier for uh, the disinfection and the purification of such uh, a space with a disinfectant uh, lobby. And of course, a robotic I mean, we system. Have to that now. Be, we uh, have just, to uh, yeah, two slides and I'll just finish. I'm sorry for if I took uh, a little bit longer. So I'm, it came to an end, fortunately. So thank you. I'm sorry that uh, if I've uh, just talking a little bit quickly, I try to follow no, the time schedule. So I can welcome. watch this for hour on end, Samir, because you're so very creative. But we got to go okay. on. And if you okay. have questions, you. Samir, please post them on, on chat. And yeah. Samir, you can you respond. Can, you can reach so, me anytime. It's a delight to see your work. Uh, now, our presentation is from uh, none other than our grad student who just, you know, you graduated this year. In like three weeks. Three weeks. <laughs> and so uh, let me introduce to you none other than uh, Claire uh, Stevenson. Claire is, uh, is 
has started to work for Axiom, and uh, she used to work at JPL before, and uh, uh, we are good to see that she's graduating and heading on to uh, professional work. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Jerry, can grab that. Will you give me permission to share? Yeah. You can share, yes. Go ahead. Um, I don't have any, I don't have a button to share. We, you go to share, share screen, they should, should have a uh, There's no button. Mm -hmm. I you were, sorry, I told you were already. Oh, because you are in person. I thought you were going to, oh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, accept it. Now it should okay. It should be okay. Beautiful. Okay, we got time. All right. Uh, hello. Uh, as Maggie said, uh, I'm Claire. I'm currently a master's student at USC just finishing up, going to graduate in a couple weeks. I was in his class in the fall um, where I came up with this initial concept. So this is RALIS, the robotic assembly of lunar, inflatable, and erectable structures. So first, a problem and concept solution overview. For this early lunar settlement, uh, my main objectives are the where, why, when, and how. And so Looking at the research and what's been done before, decided that the Mare Tranquiliardis would be an ideal starting location point for this. Uh, why, and then can also go along with the Artemis III timeline. Um, so there will be a lunar habitat for that. Uh, when, and also the where is so that we can have that free return um, with the SLS missions and staying in that system and timeline and then either in conjunction with their mission on SLS or separately with Starship. And so the problem I'm hoping to address with this concept is that there's a lot of concepts out there for lunar habitat, as we've seen today. A lot of them have very long extended timelines and are very complicated and involve a lot of R&D, such as the 3D printing that involves centering and having to uh, go through the regolith and the in-situ uh, resource utilization where I'm hoping to have a concept that kind of optimizes work that's already been done both here on Earth and in the lunar sphere um, so that it's the most efficient way possible um, to get us back to the moon now. And so some background, as I mentioned, the 3D printing um, using the regolith as building material it involves a lot of complicated machinery and is very time intensive and probably better in the later phases of lunar settlement, um, instead of trying to use it as our first approach. And then also crude construction is very costly, higher risk, and you need a lot more redundancy for sending people right away. And so also a little more background on different types of structures. You can either do pre-integrated, so sending up something that's already completely assembled, have the erectable and deployable, where you send it up in either a kit or deflated and packaged and then either spring it out or erect it there, or the ISRU based, which I mentioned the 3D printing and using um, the resources on the moon to build completely new structures. And so the concept that I'm proposing is a hybrid approach that 
we use more of that class two. Um, so it's quick, it's easy. You have a kit that you're using and then not having crude construction, but instead using autonomous robots uh, to get it done quickly before humans uh, even have to go to the moon. And so first of all, the autonomous robots would excavate uh, this landing site and then they would be able to assemble the kit themselves. And then that would be your outer structure and then have a deployable inner structure um, with airlocks for uh, human habitability. And so a little step-by-step -step process. First, you have a lander with some of your autonomous construction robots. They'd be able to construct a pad using uh, like a lander kit that they bring with. And then once you have a pad set, you can have a larger lander with uh, your kit for your actual uh, deployable and erectable habitat. And so then your robots are able to prepare the site using their excavation tools and then assemble the structure themselves. And so this is what the structure would look like as an initial concept. You have that outer structure, um, which is your erectable. There's companies that do this right now, such as the Sprong structure. Um, and you can have an inner, outer um, erectable. So you have a Whipple-like action uh, for MMOD protection. And then your deployable inner habitat, um, which can be deployed using those autonomous robots as well. And so some of the key features on this, um, as I mentioned, the mayor of Tranquilardis landing site, you have your autonomous site prep, your erectable structure, your inner inflatable habitat, and then your airlock. And so for the landing site, the equatorial mayor regions are heritage. Um, there's been astronauts there. We have direct communication. And then it's also relatively flat, smoother terrain um, for your robots to easily work. And then you have the autonomous site prep. Um, this is being done terrestrially already um, with these autonomous construction robots being able to um, erect structures here on Earth. And so doing this on the moon, you'd be able to do it with uh, little human intervention um, and have your structure already set up before even arriving. And these are just some examples of um, the lunar excavation tools. And then your erectable strong like sprung structure, um, as I mentioned, you can just send up a kit with all the parts, erectable, um, and then you can also have your thermal um, shielding, radiation shielding, um, MMOT protection all built into that. Um, there's no foundation, which means uh, less actual construction digging, um, just very easily erectable. And then you can have modularity on this as well um, if you want to expand. And then the components of this is you have your rapid construction. It's quick and easy, um, design flexibility, um, just that outer structure you can uh, design for whatever your purposes are, um, performance and durability. Um, these have been used on earth. No R&D is necessary as much as you know using the lunar resources and then lower overall cost um, because of that as well. And then your inflatable inner habitat, there's been um, some concepts for lunar and orbital use already. And then this is just the quickest and easiest way to produce pressurized habitat. And then your autonomous robots can deploy it and verify that and have everything all set up and ready by the time humans uh, arrive. And then you have the airlocks. This is a um, 
NASA concepts that would be easily expandable and um, packaged for flights and then just uh, expanded with the use of the autonomous robots. So then summary of all this, you send your robots, they build the landing pad, um, they're able to excavate, dust removal, um, and all the site preparation, and then they'll be able to assemble the sprung structure easily on their own, and then deploy the inflatable in seconds. And so the key points, your autonomous construction plus your erectable inflatable kits means a quicker and easier way to get to the moon now instead of having to do a lot of uh, excess R&D for projects that may take decades. And then the next steps for this are just making account ops, cost estimates, um, and then more detailed design on the uh, actual erectable and inflatable structures. That's it. Thank you all. Try to get through that fast. <laughs> Thank you, Guess what? We are we are in uh, reaching the end of the marathon here, uh, and uh, my wonderful other student uh, is online. I know, so um, can you? Yeah, uh -oh. Carla, is, Carla, are you there? Oh, there she is. Good. Howdy, Carla. You will be the show ender. Um, I'll I'll have a few slides uh, to close up, but. Uh, so glad to see you. Um, yeah, please um, introduce yourself because I know that you are a Lockheed Martin employee, but um, what are the other exciting things you do before you screen the images? Well, I was I was a Lockheed Martin, but now I'm in Raytheon. So Raytheon Technologies. Okay, I remember that. Okay. Um, but I would consider myself an entrepreneur and a culinary tourist. <laughs> Uh, I am, um, I, I took Madhu's class. I have a master's degree in system architecting and engineering from USC and a master's degree in electrical engineering as well. Um, a whole bunch of awards. Uh, I've been, I've been, I've been looking at them, but uh, uh, go for it, Carl. So I will, I will try to make this quick since this is the last presentation here. And I, let me share my screen. Um, Carla is going to get us going on the uh, enzymes in our tummy for food because she's into culinary stuff. Okay, go for it. And Carla presented at the IAC, uh, followed by a few other presentations uh, at the AAA. And now here yep. she is. Uh, I don't know why I can't share. Somehow. Mm. Oh, color. Yeah, I kind of should be should be on the list. Do you, do you see the green button? 
Yeah, color. And you should have a green button at the bottom. Uh, the menu. Door. Oh, I gotta quit and reopen. Did you see a green button? In the yeah, but somehow I have to reopen my Zoom. Take your time. Okay. Let me leave just for a second. Library closed officially at six. Oh, we have the room supposed to five thirty. Uh, if you really, really want to run a little bit over, I think you will allow us. No, we can close at five. But it's better to <laughs> before five thirty. Let's see. Yeah. 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 Seems to be working. Go ahead. Sounds good. <clears throat> yeah. Right, can you see my screen? Is that? Yes. Yes. Show? Okay. I think I'm okay. Looking good. Yeah. So, as Matthew mentioned, this is the um, uh, part of the Chase project. I was in the 2021 class and. So my concept is creating human experience through food or chef in space. All right. Um, so just a quick background. I mean, the well, the um, it is part of promoting the chase and uh, that plan proposes an early transition of the ISS operations from NASA spaceflight projects to a university consortium and private sector. So the objective of the Chef in Space project as part of that is to serve gourmet food and provide the space travelers with an exceptional dining experience. It also hopes to address the challenges of creating a more palatable meal and providing nutritious and tasty food that would all that would cater to the individual's caloric need. And I'm not going to go through the space food history, but I wanted to point out that, you know, NASA has constantly found ways to improve the space food system and um, and using based on the con constraints that they have. But as of today, all of these are prepackaged and prepared on Earth, but and, and there's still no cooking in space. Um, here, here's a space deep space food challenge that NASA and the CSA launched, um, and it, the focus that they um, had was on manufactured foods, bioculture, and plant growth. 
and what Chef in Space hope to contribute here is the technology to enable cooking in space. Now, there are all these new technologies that exist today. We have the hydroponic technology, robot chef, telerobot system, Astrobee, and additive manufacturing, to name a few. And all these technologies integrated together um, would create this, um, this uh, automated space kitchen. So here, and there are so many space-themed restaurants that offer an out-of-this-world experience. And recently, Disney just opened up a space dining experience in Epcot. I've never been there, but um, I, I've seen a lot of uh, pictures. And it gives people the visual environment of being in space, but not necessarily the microgravity dining experience. Um, which can only be achieved in space. But it's only a matter of time when um, all these space hotels and, and ISS becomes a hotel which, in which uh, dining areas will be retrofitted into these. The chef in space concept is then to provide the food experience and technology to build the future of, of customized and nutritious meals um, in an automated way. And this concept can be applied in short and long journeys anywhere on Earth or in space. So it is using the pressure cooking concept. It has been used for centuries, and it's still a popular method of cooking as of today. Um, the, the technology has definitely improved over the years with mechanisms to prevent devices from accumulating too much pressure and exploding. So it is definitely much safer now than decades ago. Um, but why the pressure cooking concept? Well, the principle of ideal gas law would still work in these space stations and space hotels because the cabin pressure is the same as a sea level pressure on Earth. Additionally, not only does it shorten cooking time? It maintains the quality and integrity of the food. So I'm proposing that uh, cooking the pressure cooking technology be introduced in space just um, to, to aid in that gourmet food creation. And this is my chef, and chef concept mm -hmm. architecture. Um, there's the module, ca the kitchen capsule, capsule, the solar arrays, and, and the power module. Um, and they're dedicated to the robotic kitchen. This is the inside view of the kitchen module in which you would see familiar um, equipment you'd find in a traditional kitchen retrofitted for space use. So uh, there's the environmental control module, the command and control, which is really the brain of the kitchen module orchestrating the dish preparation process. There's your pantry, um, the prep station. There's the, I mean, you always have to clean after you prep. So there's the cleaning station. And then the Astrobee is where the Astrobee food attendants would, would go. 
and the pressure cooker module, which houses the, the pressure cooking technology. And lastly, there's the robot arm module and each of the robot arm performs specific tasks. And this is just an example of how it may sequentially perform the task. And then the Astro B food attendant station the, on, on the left is just, um, and, and give, gives you an idea of the size relative to a human adult. And so here's the Astro B delivering the food um, Astrobe, uh, with, with a robot arm placing the food in it. And here is Astrobe charging. This is just the functional flow of this, of the chef in space adopting the McDonald's speedy system. And it's just providing an overview of the end-to-end -end chef experience from ordering the food to preparing it and, and um, delivering it to the individual or group. And then um, at the end, you'll see how we'd want to obtain feedback from um, the customer about the food. And, and, and this is for um, getting that flavor adjustments in the future, because in space, you know, you're limited with, uh, you know, the sense of taste and smell. So it'll be good to sort of have that feedback loop to adjust the flavor. And then the dining experience in space, which I would like to collaborate with Kaja and her colleagues with, because it really touches on what they do. And it, it would focus on togetherness um, because these space travelers are far from home. They have each other's company and people need that social app aspect in their life. It will feature the multi-sensory food and flavor perception, which we would bring visual sounds and um, smell into the into eating the food to enhance their their um, eating behavior. Say, uh, and it, it's to encourage people to eat healthy foods and potentially influence a positive experience. And then there's food transformation, and as the name indicates, it's 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 transforming the food to make it enjoyable, and it kind of goes along with a multi-sensory food and flavor perception, but also using technology to transform your food into something more pleasurable to eat. Like if you have um, vegetable ingredients, you can possibly make that into a cake. So um, those kinds of transformation. And then there's floating food, which is more of a form of entertainment, which you'd see in a lot of um, the astronaut uh, videos and, and pictures online. Um, and it's, you know, eating the food as it floats towards you or away from you, that kind of experience. Um, these are just the opportunities I see. And uh, big thing is definitely the space tourism. Um, but the challenges is, uh, you know, waste management, designing that pressure cooking vessel for zero and microgravity, um, and also cleaning and sanitizing that kitchen after use. Um, that's, that, that's been, I mean, still a huge problem in, um, in the ISS where, you know, microbiomes or micro, what is it? Biofilms um, are, are sort of uh, developing over the years. So like these um, uh, uh, germs are, are becoming more resistant and 
they they have a buildup on on these um, uh, tubes. Um, complexities I see are I'd say understanding the water behavior in a pressure cooker in in that microgravity in environment and and knowing how food is cooked, what are the emergent behaviors there. Um, so, but it's really understanding the water behavior with food and pressure. But um, technologies are advancing and I think that a fully automated kitchen will definitely be uh, something of a reality in the near future. And that's it for my presentation. Thanks for listening and staying. Thank you. Thank you, um, Carla. I know we, we are now getting ready for dinner. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but you know, one of the things that you may all know is that, it, is that the person, or maybe even the entity, that, uh, that can cook is considered the leader in a group of people. And this has been proved over and over in the Antarctica and forward camps. Uh, folks uh, who can cook can control people. And uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a sign of leadership to be able to be a good cook. Uh, you know, we are done with all the presentations. I have a few slides I would like to share if Ken will allow me. Um, Ken, if you can pull up our concluding slides. Oh, oh, oh gosh, okay, well, uh, and uh, we'll take a picture with with all these award winners at the end to end uh, uh, Ken. Okay, five seconds. That's a good one, okay, good. Okay, so uh, we've heard today We've heard a whole spectrum of thoughts, ideas. Some of them are concepts, some of them are philosophies. And, and, and the beauty of an architectural, a space architectural presentation or a gathering is that we get to hear a lot of different points of view. And, and this is a hallmark of an architect's education. I wouldn't say you would, you would do this in an, in an engineering school, unless you're an open-minded engineer uh, who wants to learn about everything else. But, but the fact remains that architects and engineers work on exactly the same problem. And yet we have difficulties talking to each other. Um, so Ken, did you want to drive the slides? So great. So um, um, to, to give it, a big picture view, like Mark Cohen mentioned. Can you go back? Okay. So uh, philosophies beget visions, and visions become policies in governments. And then we tend to become the architects and the engineers who develop ideas, show their merits and limitations, and then feed back into the philosophies. So philosophies grow, and architectures and ideas grow. And, uh, and the most important thing that architects do that I don't see so many of the younger engineers do is tell stories. Storyline matters. 
how you press it matters. And the, the idea of putting a concept in a concept that is credible makes an entire story different. That's why I like concept and context are connected. And then, uh, uh, you know, I take the risk out of my class by telling my students, work on something that is happening now so you won't have a problem connecting concept to context. Because once you know it's happening, the real thing's happening, it's easy for us to, us to connect. And uh, so with that, let's go to Ken. Can you have another slide? So uh, visions are not created in a vacuum. And uh, if, you, if you ask, is there a space philosophy? We have had some space philosophy uh, gatherings here uh, at the AIAA. And, uh, and when we do very complicated, complex endeavors, it's very important to have a philosophy in the back of your mind because many times your task manager or your project manager will be faced with questions that are not in the requirements document. And so where do they go? They go deep into their philosophical bend of mind and say what needs to be done. So philosophy leads to vision and to policies and then everything else we do. And this is true, governing all ideologies of great civilizations and projects. So many times when things are not in the book, I think I mentioned this earlier, there's a saying, a heuristic in systems architecting, which says the finest requirements documents are completed after the mission. So it tells you the quandary that you are in. You know, you, you, you have uh, this uh, irony of uh, not having all the things in place till uh, the job is done. Let's go to the next one. And uh, so some people make money on this. Simon Sinek goes around talking about why it is important to start asking the question, why are we doing what we are doing before what and how? And uh, sometimes we do it well, but most times we are all uh, in, a, in a nebulous mode, uh, you know, hoping that somebody will clarify it for us. Next one. So uh, in terms of space philosophies, there are so many of them. Uh, in, uh, in being articulated now. And, uh, you know, they all uh, talk to one uh, thing. If you, at, the end of, at the end of the day, uh, you say, oh, there are just too many philosophies. Is there any common thread? Uh, let's look at that again. Uh, the common thread, let's go, is this, is really this. In fact, you can even focus and say, it's about our species. Because Mother Earth knows how to take care of herself. She has done this over four and a half billion years. But um, we think that all the space architectural thinking can help in evolving a more sensible, a more frugal, a more uh, relatable way that we engage planet Earth and the biosphere. Um, next, Ken. So that is why NASA right now has a context, if you think about it, their contextual focus is slowly evolving towards climate change. Our administrator at NASA 
has been an advocate for uh, several decades. And uh, uh, you will see many more missions flying, uh, talking about uh, uh, climate change and uh, monitoring planet Earth. Next. And, you know, um, Jim Lovelock, the, the um, philosopher scientist who talked about planet Earth being sentient, uh, suggests that, um, that uh, Gaia, the Gaia hypothesis is really about, um, about looking at how planet Earth works. And uh, we don't have a handle on it. We really don't have a handle on climate change. Uh, we have some loose, you know, loose ends and pieces, but uh, but we are uh, we are getting there. And I think space artifacts and space missions will help us to to weave a much better picture of climate change. And how do you relate? How do we relate to space activity uh, in uh, in climate change? The answer is tough up. We got to tough up, and uh, that is why uh, Lovelock, uh, who passed on recently, he said, "I've always said that adaptation is the most serious thing we can do, which means you got to roll with the punches, and it's happening right now. And I'm thinking that if we use spacecraft technologies, we can be a tougher species, and we can be a tougher species." without messing with the planet and without messing with what we call a minimal footprint in the ecology of planet Earth. Next. Now, you may remember Captain Kirk, uh, William Shatner, who just did a suborbital trip on, uh, on uh, Bezos' uh, rocket ship. And he made a very interesting comment, and this is Captain Kirk, who has been beaming down to different planets all over the all over the universe, he says that the moment you went up, a minute or two or three, uh, he says down there is light and life, and up pitch black, and what he thinks is dead. It's really true because every single moment you put a human into space, you are dealing with 100 percent elements that are trying to kill you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we do everything we can to experience space. And uh, here is uh, the brave Captain Kirk telling you what it's like to go suborbital <laughs> into a few a few miles up into space. <laughs> That's right. Let's go. Uh, so I mean, you know, these are the things. Now, let me tell you something that I find worrisome when architects uh, engage, uh, and uh, it, 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 it talks to some of the physics that you learned in high school. You know, we want to, you want to be thinking about it, and they, uh, you know, if, you know, a lot of us are scared of numbers. It's not just just some of us, but a lot of us are scared for, for numbers. But arithmetic, everybody can do, and. Uh, uh, the first and second laws of thermodynamics is something that that um, we got to get used to qualitatively. You don't need to know about about how much as much as how. And uh, here you'll see that in these first two um, laws of thermodynamics, which many of them take to heart uh, and cherish for the rest of their lives, 
And some of them say it is it is God's way of speaking to us. Uh, but you know that's uh, beyond me. Uh, but uh, Ken has run away, so we need somebody to move the slides. Uh, can you push? Okay, good. So second law, first and second law of thermodynamics tell you a lot of things that go on when you exit the cocoon of planet Earth. Can we? Can you see yeah, yeah. that? Do that, dear. And uh, so um, you know, let's go to the next one. So we all know, we all know this. Even if you don't know it, you know it from going into a bathtub or taking a shower or coming out or running out into, the, into a cold place. Uh, you know that there are different modes of uh, heat transfer. But you know, once you exit the cocoon of planet Earth, you're stuck with only one. Can you go to the next slide? And that is radiation. Radiated heating takes over. Everything else uh, becomes subservient to um, the radiated heating and cooling. And it's pretty, uh, pretty severe. Uh, it, it, the heat and the cold is so severe uh, compared to what we experience here or when you pop, pop into um, a frozen pool or something like that, uh, it's far more severe. Next. We got radiation too. And you know, my, uh, the co-author on our book was director of radiation medicine at Palomar Hospital. So he would look at me and say, do you know what happens when you get hit with radiation? And I say, yeah, I've read Manhattan Project. No, 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 I mean, I mean, has something happened to a human you know? And then he elaborates on how your systems fail and your doctor cannot help. So this is why we think radiation protection is important. It's very, very important. And uh, so far, we don't have any data in directly impinging life and uh, living organisms from space to know how uh, important or whether it's a paper dragon. We don't know. But so that is the main theme of putting people into, uh, into orbit and on the way to the moon. Let's go to the next one. And um, if you're in orbit, you know that your system is going to be suffering heat and cold every 45 minutes in low Earth orbit. And, and the temperature swings are so great that uh, uh, you have to be prepared. Your, your vehicles have to be prepared with extra energy on each cycle to take care of it when you're cold and then cool you when you're on the sun side. Next. And uh, then you think about going to the moon, it gets even worse. Look at how the temperature swings happen. And if you think how ah, well and good, we'll go, to, we'll go down to 89 latitude and relax for a few days. No, the problem is, can next? See, if you look at how temperature varies, you get the feeling that you want to be at a place where you got a constant temperature at, at 50 or 45. Kelvin, let's, let's go next. And that is where we are struggling with now. We want to put people in the polar region of the moon and the third thermodynamics is extreme with a capital E and capital rest of the letters. It is extreme. And begin next, next. So energy and action are related. 
If you have energy, you can do things. If you don't have energy, it happens to animals. That's why iguanas fall from the trees in Florida when it gets cold. They, they don't have the energy, boom, they fall down. And this happens to us too. If we, we cool us, we, we knock ourselves out very quickly. So energy and action are related. In fact, uh, if you look, the, the, the Indian philosophies compare both of them together. Energy is, is one part of the equation and action is the other. And uh, so my thinking on this is, if there is energy, we can work it. We can work anything. If not, we have to really work to find energy. And this is a struggle we are having when we go to the polar regions of the moon. Next. I want you all to think about the triple point. I mean, these are high school things that I don't know if they teach you uh, these days, but uh, high school physics tells you that there is a thing called triple point in all materials. If you put um, the, the pressure on the, on the y-axis and temperature along the edge, and you put any materials, you'll find that they are vapor, liquid, or solid, depending on the temperature and the pressure. In, in fact, if you go to Denver, your water boils at 92 degrees um, Celsius. I mean, so it tells you already that we know these things, but we don't use them. Next one. So there are different things called triple point and critical point that are of interest to us. And then there are different phases. And uh, all these things matter when you take and play around and mess with pressure and uh, temperature and happens in the space environment. Next. That is, uh, you, want to, you want to read this up. I mean, these are qualitative talks and it's on, uh, you'll get to see it on uh, uh, Wikipedia. Next. And there is dust. I think somebody brought that up, but you're right. Dust can be messy, particularly when it's electrically charged. Next. And the spacesuits, uh, as we had some interesting discussions, uh, they use a lot of thermodynamics to stabilize uh, the, the temperature um, and uh, the ambience uh, inside of a spacesuit to keep the crew member uh, safe and alive. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, everybody will tell you that a spacecraft uh, is a small, uh, I mean, a spacesuit is a small spacecraft. And it's designed so that you can keep a human alive and operational for a long period of time. And we are struggling now with the new spacesuit, but I'm told that Axiom is doing very well on it. Next. Now, as you all heard in the past uh, a few talks, uh, at least among space architects, we think that human needs are much, much more than what robots need. And that's why we really cling to robots because we think we can control them we can do everything and they don't need food and they never ask for workers' compensation. You know, so these are the kind of things that we need to get um, real about. And now, in the last few years, we are uh, understanding that plans make a big difference in, in, in human, uh, human condition in extreme environments. And uh, that is why we are starting to grow uh, food on station and we think it's very important. Next. So all these things are embedded in the United Nations Sustainable Goals. 
And that is why the architects drill me every time I'm in, you know, in the spring semester. They go like, what are you talking about when we know all these things? And I keep telling them that, you know, many of these things matter of people in space and vice versa. Next. So there is space. And, you know, again, this is philosophical. Comes down to us from, I don't know, 5,000 BC or something like that. And they differentiated the qualities of, uh, 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 of the universes, space, energy, air, land, and water. In fact, these are exactly the same things we are fighting about now on planet Earth. Next. So uh, yeah, today we had a, a person who could read that language, uh, but it's called the five, uh, the five spirits, water, fire, air, um, space, and and this, uh, these are things that have been debated, not since our grandpa's times, but, uh, but since, um, <laughs> since um, before history. And uh, um, it's, these are um, the philosophical insights that, that we need to uh, ingrain in us, um, even at the qualitative levels. Next. Um, you know, I had asked uh, these nonfiction people uh, from San Francisco uh, to present. Uh, they presented a couple of slides at the, um, the South by Southwest uh, uh, conference uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, Namfen uh, is a, um, uh, also is part of the University of Houston. She's a newest um, six uh, grad. And uh, here she says it very clearly, you know, that uh, why we do space is to accelerate innovation so that we can live better on Earth. And that makes very good sense, I think. And a NASA administrator and Pam Malroth, all of them believe this. Next. So in a word, what, what did you say? Space architecture is Earth architecture. I mean, I mean, it's about Earth architecture being refined in the 21st century so that we can all appreciate uh, the, 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 uh, the, the predicament that our uh, species and the biosphere is in. Next. And you know, these are things that I inscribe uh, on the halls of power. I don't know how many of them will read it, but this one, uh, these things are literally in the parliament buildings in India and in the United States, can you go back one, Ken? You know, uh, no, forward. Forward, yeah. You know, it, it's inscribed in the Capitol building. And next. So uh, what are architects known for? We are known for dreaming up visions. And we, we get into projects in all different areas of project activities, coordination, transformation, but we do one thing differently than from a lot of other professions. That is, I think somebody mentioned it. I think I think um, Barbara mentioned it. Uh, Barbara Imhoff mentioned it. We make beautiful things. We try. We strive for beautiful things. That's why uh, Wolfgang Gottes, Gottes said, uh, muse, uh, architecture is frozen music. So uh, it is an art to be able to tell a story and one other thing that an architect does, 
you know, when an engineer is forceful, when an engineer uh, really burns the midnight oil and wants her or his project done, uh, and she has fire in her belly, there's a thing called persuasion. You call it two in the morning. Some of you, I don't know, you may know uh, 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 our friend over there, a couple of miles back behind in SpaceX, he calls people, you know, <laughs> at all times of the day because he has a fire in his belly. And, but we built, you know, I, I put up that image of Yon uh, Sun's uh, architecture because the man had a vision. It took many years to build it because we did not have the technology or there were so many politics. But uh, after a long while, it got built. And guess what? It's an icon. Everybody knows the Sydney Opera House. Next. So architects, I believe architects deal more with philosophy and policies more than uh, engineers. But at, at, in our school, uh, we realized this. The deans of engineering and architecture have been discussing about what they call engineering plus. The idea is you do your engineering analysis and your math, and then you come into my class and do a little bit of the other stuff, and then you're on your way. Let's go. Now, I want to just finish with two slides. This, this rocket on the left shrine uh, is the Starship sitting on the booster right now. That is an image from three days ago. It's ready to go. It's ready to go. And there is a big difference from all the other stuff you see on the other side, including the Saturn V. You know what's the biggest difference between Saturn V and the Starship? Saturn V is an expendable vehicle. And Starship is fully, fully reusable. A different paradigm in the 25th, 21st century. So we are hoping to see this launch. I'm told that uh, notice, to, notice to mariners have gone off across the globe. So everybody is waiting for this. Uh, Elon says 50, 50 chance it'll blow up. I think 40, 60, but you know what? The moment is done, the next one and the next one and the next one is ready to come online. This is how engineering is done. I don't know how many of you know this term called pranging. I did this, a lot of people I knew did this. You build something, you break it, and then you know what the heck happened and you fix it. You know, anybody who's built uh, you know, airplane models of who them, you know, your plane is not going to fly <laughs> for its time. For all the things your aerodynamic is right, you may have even done your equations, stay, you know, now your strokes and so on, but you know what? When it gets to flight, there's a, there's a heuristic for it. It says before the flight, it's opinion. After the flight, it's, you know, the facts. I have a question regarding um, the starship. Yes. Okay, so. Let me, let me finish this and then I can. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So the things that are coming up, ISDC is coming up. They're hounding me to put up uh, abstracts. Next. That was it. Thank you all. And I'm ready to Can you take a picture of all the yes. guys from this? Smile, you front of the camera. <laughs> okay. No. So let's put up a let's put up a slide so that so that it looks. Let's put the deep blue person on the slide, please. Who? Uh, the deep blue. Can you go back? Back. Oh, that's a good one. Ready? Like that? You can you can slide view like you put the slide view like. Yeah, you want this one? Okay. Let's sit down, sit down. Oh. Because the camera. Oh, good. Then we take picture. Oh, good. Uh, show it to the camera. Yes. Uh, 
Um, I take a screenshot. Yeah, I'm on this side too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have a stand up thing. If you stand, you stand there. Oh, yeah. Very good. Thank you. Anybody else got this? <laughs> Guys, uh, yeah. come, come on over here. Come on over here. Okay. You two first. Then, then they join. Okay, smile, smile. Cheese. One, two, three. One more. One, two, three. Thank you. Uh, the go, 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 you guys. Let's take a take a group picture. Yeah, sorry, folks online. We are uh, taking group photos. And I want Ken to come in. And how do we do this? Mm -hmm. I didn't take a photo. No, no, you, you, you don't have a. Uh, go, 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 go. Can you take you a could, photo with the one put it on the stand. Yeah, you can put it on the stand and then timer. I, I, I can. Uh, I that, that's good. Okay, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> One, two, three, smile. Thank you. Oh, one second. One, oh, two more. One, two. One, two, three, smile. One more. One, two, three. Thank you. Can we, let me, because you right there. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, online. Thank you all. Oh, so you won't take <laughs> Okay, it was you. all not productive day. Yeah, that was closing. Uh, <laughs> now, who is that? It's me. Oh my goodness, you sat through the whole thing, huh? Well, it's. Okay, so. Bye. Thanks, Madhu. Thank bye bye, uh, Sandra. Uh, I don't think Vittorio they see us, so it's okay. okay. Thank you all for coming in. Okay, one, two, three. One more. Bye. Let's get the flash going. Who else is there? Going back in time, there was just. I know some of us stayed there. You can choose. One, two, three. One more. One, two, three. We'll take one, oh, one with the uh, picture on the side. I saw the drive cam. <laughs> okay. Okay, cheese. One, two, three. One more. One, two, three. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. Okay. Thanks, everyone, online. See you next time. We're shutting down. Thank you. Oh, I enjoyed it.